So, Kirk. Yeah. Today, we've actually already done a podcast, and we started one place, and we ended up somewhere else. So, we're here talking it over again and sort of figuring out how to introduce this episode to the listeners. Right. We did a introduction. We did the whole episode, but then we went down some very interesting roads that are completely different from the original intro. So now we're doing another intro. Yeah. We originally were going to talk about mental status exam and affect, but somehow we ended up talking about your personality, my personality, sense of self. You went into some extremely personal areas for yourself. Mm. Um, I I think I did too, but I I feel like you did more than me. Uh, We talked about the concept of self, the development of self, living your purpose, existential things. Yeah, we did a lot of existential stuff. And really specific in a way that I, I've never, I don't think I've really had a conversation like that before about how does one develop self? What does it feel like to have less of a self, yeah. less of a purpose? And the real experience of what it's like to search for that and and try to find it and, mm-hmm. and, and why emerging self would be tamped down by fears of rejection and and it hurting other people and based on experience and and how that interplay of of self and and just trying to survive yeah. you gave a phrase that you know the utility of I'm not sure I exist outside my own utility right it, and that's a thing that a lot of people suffer from particularly people who were mistreated growing up they're surviving day to day. And so they're just trying to be utilitarian yeah. to other people. They're trying to be useful and not bother other people. And they were never given a time or a space to, to be themselves and to, what do I want? You know, what do I want out of this life? Because when I focus on that, bad things happen or people don't care or I don't even know what I want. Yeah. I don't even know. Right. We go into our relationship, times where you and I have had conflict. Right. Times where you have slapped my hand metaphorically, oh, yeah. and uh, and I deserved it. Oh. Uh, while we talk about late night pizza, yeah, this is a psychology and shadow podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkanda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your friend for the last twenty two years. Yeah, who uh, you met in graduate school way back when. Also a therapist in practice here in Seattle. It is twenty four years. Oh, you are right. Oh, wow. Half my life. So this episode is just for patrons of the podcast for a few reasons. One is because I like to make the clinical, more clinical episodes just for patrons. And also because we get into such personal stuff. This is not suited for general internet uh, exposure. Uh, This is only available to patrons. And so if you want to get the, so this is going to end. If you're not a patron, this episode is going to end for you very soon. Mm -hmm. If you're a patron, you're going to get access to the whole thing. And if you want to access the whole thing and the hundreds of other episodes in which we go into uh, some of our best content, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron of our podcast. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to all those episodes. You also don't have to listen to commercials. And you also know that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including Pet Finder, Trevor Project, and we actually are giving out scholarships now. We, we just gave out a $2,000 scholarship to someone who was going to have to drop out of their doctoral studies. Oh, if, I didn't know you found someone. Uh, she was going to have to drop out of school because she didn't have enough money for her program. And, and she's already done so much for wow. the world and society. And she's going to do so many great things for social justice and 
for poor folks and people of color. She's just she's already done amazing, and she's she's going to be an amazing That's... contribution to our field. And so it just feels so good to be a part of that. Yeah pragmatic um, thing. And, and so when you become a patron, know that some of your money goes towards that. Uh, so let's end that portion right now. What do you say, Bob? I say yes. All right. Welcome to the patron zone people. So let's get into affect. What do you, do you know that? So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Sure. Bob. I'm going to try to answer all of them. And so some of these questions you might not know the answer to. Yeah. Uh, which is totally fine. First question, what is affect? Do you know what affect is? Um, I think it's sort of like the body and facial expression of a person's internal emotional state. Perfect. That is exactly what it is. The emotion conveyed by behavior. Yeah. And it is observed. Yeah. It's observable, right? Yeah. In fact, it's the only thing you, you can't actually observe somebody's emotional state. Right. You can only, you know, make deductive guesses. Right. It's an interesting distinction that I think was lost on me until, you know, later in my career, that there's this difference between, which makes total sense, of a behavioral observation as opposed to what we might say like a sense observation or an intuition observation or a gestalt observation based on many different things that are happening. Most of which you probably can't actually name or even be conscious of. Like intuition is when you know something to be true without having all the facts. But somewhere in your mind is registering probably through what you see, little little things that you see that you don't actually register in your conscious mind. This is what's going on with so-and-so. And I think you get that with lots of experience. Yeah. And if you don't have a behavior you can point to and and show someone else and say, this is why I'm saying this or that, then, of course, our own bias can slip in there. Absolutely. And two different people can look at the same patient and say, well, I thought I saw this. Well, I thought I saw that. Well, so it was lost on me that our profession, there's there's a sizable slice of our profession that actually hates any observation that can't be demonstrated by some discrete thing that's happening. Wow. Like like the amount of words per minute or uh-huh. the posture uh, that someone's sitting in right. or the amount of hand movements that one is doing or the amount of blinks that someone is. And that the DSM is based on that system. The DSM is based on a system of observation. Right. You know, you ask someone, are, were you depressed more days than not? Right. So it's not a assessment of someone who is trying to piece... I mean, there is some obvious clinician uh, expertise that has to be applied, but a lot of it is attempting to be based on ob- behavioral observation, right. and the MSC is is all of that. Yeah. And so it... Uh, to, to me, for probably 99% of my career ha- has, has nothing to do with any of this stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah. behave, uh, of course... Uh, my conscious and unconscious mind are observing behavior, of course, in clients. But to think in the discrete terms of what affect is this patient or client exhibiting right now to Uh me? It's just not something that I do because I think we operate much more intuitively and we're trying to attune to our clients. We're trying to listen. Right. We're trying to piece things together. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sort of 
a lab coat observation doesn't seem in line with our style of therapy and many people's styles of therapy. No. I'd say that they're actually – well, ask, tell me what you think of this. There's a distinction between doing an exam like this and actually providing counseling and psychotherapy. They're right. really different functions, though. They get lumped into the same general profession you know, for understandable reasons. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting that we are expected to, and trained to be good therapists who provide meaning and healing and uh, sometimes advice, guidance – a place to talk, yeah. and we're also supposed supposedly trained to do some basic elements of assessment, even though we haven't really been trained for it very well. Oh, master's degree. Well, you your training, I think you could pre- make a pretty good. Your training uh, in your um, e program, oh, right, much much more thorough than the training we got. Uh, in graduate school. I really liked graduate school. I really appreciate my experience in graduate school, but that was a quick and dirty way to get a license. Especially back then, yeah. you your degree was just a year and a half. Yeah. A yeah. master's degree yeah. in mental health counseling. Yeah. In 18 in, months. In 18 months. Yeah. The internship was like two quarters, I think? Nine, uh, three, three months. Nine, th- uh, three quarters. Oh, three, three quarters. quarters. Not three months. Three quarters. So you started your internship just three quarters yeah. in. I mean, a year and a half. Yeah. Halfway through graduate school, I was in internship. I got, you had to have 300 client contact hours. I had 11 in the first quarter. So in the next six months, I got the vast majority, the bulk of my hours squeezed into six months. It was a. Yeah, that's still a, a problem. That's still yeah, a- it is. It's because it's too fast. And I don't know about you, but I, I, looking back now, I think the some of the supervision I got was from folks who were, you know, like oh, barely hanging on to their own job and trying to make make that work and then having this extra thing kind of upon them. You know, this was, was not my supervisor's priority. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So as a teacher of case consultation who works firsthand with interns and their experiences at, at internship, I can tell you that that has not changed. Yeah. And the uh, the quality of supervision is a bell curve, and in the middle of the bell curve is mediocrity. Yeah. At the upper end of the bell curve, where you have like 5%, is actual supervisors yeah. that you would think are the exemplars or the the way it should be. Right. Someone who pays attention, someone who is consistently there, someone who provides a safe place, someone who's actually interested in the intern's development yes. as a clinician, right. not just bossing them around and oh. keeping them in line. Yeah. Someone who is attuned to the intern's uh, emotional state and pays attention to that. Yeah. Someone who is smart. Yeah. Someone who understands and can educate people about theory. Right. Someone who understands themselves and knows how to facilitate self-awareness uh, and countertransference and yeah. a, a person of the therapist explorations with the intern. Right. Uh, I named, you know, what, 10 different qualities there. Yeah. Most of the supervisors might have two, yeah, and they're usually something like they're good at uh, bossing the person around regarding paperwork, <laughs> you know. So, so, and I say the bell curve because, and that's my experience. Yeah, mine, mine is a bell curve. Uh, I, I've only had two or three, so I've had something like twenty supervisors, and I've, I've only had really two supervisors that I would say are an example of a supervisor the way that they should be. Yeah. 
And I will say that all the supervisors are capable of being that. They sure. just don't know they're supposed to be that way. Yeah. Or they don't care. Right. Or they were forced to be a supervisor. Right. And they're not really into it. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, yeah. you have 5%, 10% who are not only just not great, but they're abusive. Yeah. They're, they're uh, tyrants. Yeah. They're uh, emotionally abusive, potentially sexually abusive, potentially mm. physically abusive, usually emotionally abusive. Right. And uh, so, yeah. But getting back to your 11 hours in the first quarter, that still happens too. Sure. And it drives me crazy because... The interns that I work with, I'm trying to get them graduated. Right. And I need them to get their hours. Absolutely. And I'm completely, it's completely out of my hands. I send these people out to these recommended sites. Sure. And it's almost universal that the first three months they get hardly any hours. And then, meaning that they don't assign cases to these interns. They don't actually give them any clients. Yeah. Or they, or they just give them like one or two yeah. at like week five or right. something. Yeah. And this is after they've been trained prior to even beginning this. You know, they've already had uh, uh, two years often of, of classes. Right. They've maybe even gone to trainings at the site, you know, the month before the start date. They're in my case consultation class. They right. have a supervisor. Everything's set up for them, yeah. ready to go. Right. And they, uh, the agency, almost 90% of the time, no matter what the agency is, they don't give them any cases in the first three months. And... Then at the fourth month, suddenly everything just starts flooding in. And so it's not like it's not like there's a steady giving of files to interns. And I've 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 had a theory about this and let, let, let me know. Let's it, hear it. Yeah. Is that the agencies it takes them a while to acclimate to new employees, essentially. Yeah, right. And and the intern is is for free. It's free labor. Right. So you're not paying them anything. So you don't, you're not incentivized to fill their schedule because it doesn't really matter. You know, if you hire someone who's staff, a staff therapist and you don't give them any files, then you're going to be paying them for 40 hours a week. And there's, they're not going to be doing anything. Yeah. Your priority is to keep those folks full. So you're going to keep them full. Yeah. But an intern, you're like, well, we don't pay them any anyway. So what's the diff? Yeah. And, I'm not really quite sure of that person, even though we've hired them, right? And they're officially a employee, or you know, yeah. some a member of the staff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know about that person yet, so I'm not going to give him any files. And somehow, like three months in, suddenly they're okay with them. It's like they they have this hard oh, time sort of realizing, like, oh, this person is actually a part of our staff now, yeah. and we can't just think of them as this outsider. Like we have to get them. Uh, running right from the start. It just, I don't know. What do you think about that, Bob? Um, you know, it's funny because when I think back on that time, I think what, what helped me in that last six months was just networking in the clinic, like just walking around and talking to the other counselors or whatever. Um, and I thought, oh, the reason this happened is because of me, but I didn't know this other thing where there's this context, a larger context, where maybe what's going on is people are actually becoming familiar with the possibility of, and, you know, like... Like you just just what you just said, yeah. I tell interns to do just what yeah. you yeah. said uh, to particularly get to know the person who does intakes. Oh yeah, and among uh, you know a dozen other things sure. that I coach people to do. Yeah, but it's I don't know. Just you saying that you got eleven hours in your first quarter uh, <laughs> is uh, just sort of triggers a PTSD for me uh, because you only needed three hundred hours. Well. Yeah. We need 
in the my marriage and family therapy program for our students. They need five hundred. Five hundred dollars. And and there's a year. Or is that generally what it is? A year, a year minimum. Yeah. Minimum. It's minimum usually, year. It's right. usually five quarters. Yeah. And sometimes, like I had an intern go seven quarters once. But that was because his internship site were being complete dicks about everything, oh. and he had to actually move to another site. Yeah. Um, but um, the uh, uh, yeah, and they need fifty hours of direct observation. So the supervisor has to observe fifty hours of them actually doing therapy. Wait, wait, direct supervision, observation, but that, but like that audio direct tape? observation. So it can be audio oh, or okay, okay, whatever. Okay, yeah, but yeah. still, you know what I mean. That's we, we didn't have that requirement. We had, I remember we you had, had it? we had yeah. like, but it wasn't 50. It was, it was like five or five. something. Oh, wow. Or three Minimal. or something. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh, okay. Well, you're pointing at the, you can get, you can let the dog in. We can, we can go fourth wall here. So, so it's interesting to always see. And then, uh, is she coming in? So Bob's letting the dog in. And then, um, you can, uh, let her out of my office by one of those doors over there. She likes to sniff you. Yeah. Uh, well, if a dog, if my dog likes the way you smell, that doesn't mean you smell good. Well, good, good's relative, right? My dog likes to roll in dead fish. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonder. It's like one of her aphrodisiacs or something. I don't know what it is. Coincidentally, so do I. <laughs> so uh, the the thing that go that I'll go more fourth wall here is. It's funny to see the different reactions to my dog when people come over. Oh, yeah? Because my dog's not a jumpy dog. She doesn't jump on people. No. She used to, but she doesn't anymore. She, but she'll always sniff. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she'll dip into the crotch area. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how people react to that, you know? <laughs> so you ha- you've always had a dog. Yeah. You've had, had a dog, dog what, for the past 10 years or yeah. something? Right. You've had cats. Cats. And you're a hands-on person, and so when you walk in, you immediately greet the dog. Yeah. You uh, you're saying doggy things, yeah. oh Chloe or whatever, yeah, and you're right. you're having a conversation like, oh, what do you sniff? Or you know yeah. that that typical dog person dog interaction when you walk in the house. Right. But then there's this whole other reaction of people walking in where it's like, if I ignore the dog. The dog won't exist. Oh. You know what I mean? Yes. Have you seen that before? Oh, sure. Sure. Non-dog people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm cool with it because on some level, there are some times when I, when I go over to someone's house, well, I used to do in-home therapy. Oh, right. And sometimes I was just like, I just want to do my job. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Right. And, and some dogs can get real annoying. Like they're real jumpy. Oh, yeah. And they're not polite. They're reacting to what's going on in the room anyways. Ooh, maybe. Yeah. So... Yeah. So distraction. Yeah. Um I just wanted to comment that uh uh you you don't seem to mind my dog no. shoving her nose in your crotch. She's a good dog. Um okay, so what are the what's the main purpose of a mental status exam? We might have gone over that, but let's let's formalize these questions. What's the main purpose of a MSE? I don't actually know. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That like as a clinician so I had to kind of think about it. Uh huh. Uh, I mean, if you just had to make up an answer, what would it be? Because I, I had a made-up answer when I first thought about it. I'd say it's to get a snapshot of somebody's um, well-being in a particular moment. Okay. Yeah. That's, that wasn't my, my snapshot was to make us look official. 
maybe, maybe that's its other function. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, well, we need this fancy thing that we do to right. legitimize our profession or something. You know, I bet there's something to that. I would have wrote that in when I had an agency job a hundred years ago. I would have wrote stuff like that to not with the conscious thought that I'm legitimizing, but with the unconscious thought. You know, I'm competing with these other therapists here, and I want to look like I know what I'm doing. And and now as a person that just you know, wants to do good therapy. I do not give a shit. Well, and you are much more confident and yeah. more competent. And ex- there's a there's a way that experienced, competent, excellent therapists present themselves. And it's almost universal that they present themselves in a way that doesn't care about how they present themselves. Oh, yeah. Right? Yes. And ironically. Yeah, right? it is. Um so I guess we're going to go off on some other tangents because honestly, the MSC is kind of boring. Sorry, well, Patron Nick. We're also not MSC experts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did a little deep <laughs> well, you, dive. Well, you are. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're good. But the, uh, the, the tangent I want to go on is the legitimizing behaviors that novice therapists will do that will drive me crazy. Oh, let's hear. Uh, do you know of any off the top of your head? Because I, I, could, I could rattle off so many. I mean, oh. I deal with a lot more novice therapists than you do. But Man, when I was in case consultation, it was like swimming with sharks. Because yeah. every time anybody said anything, somebody else was jumping on it with a critical thought. Like, oh, well, have you thought of this? Or have you thought? It? And I can't remember how many fucking book recommendations. Have you read this book? Have you read that book? Just wanted to fucking scream. And this went on for nine months. I, I just resolved early on that if I was going to say anything, and I didn't say much in consultation, in case consultation class, I was only going to say things that were supportive of whatever the person's doing, because the hell with the rest of it. It's all mental masturbation. And you were more, as this is evidence, that you were more advanced than a lot of us students. I remember, uh, I, you know, I took a lot of classes with you, and I just had a very real sense that you knew much more about this profession and knew much more about like what was happening in the moment than most of us did, particularly, particularly me. I had already been a client for many, many years. <laughs> Is that what it was? That's a big part of it. And then I, I had some mental health jobs before I got to uh, grad school. Oh yeah. So in Pennsylvania or, um, yeah, I worked in a psych hospital in Pennsylvania with kids and also at a runaway shelter. And then I moved out here and I work with chronically mentally ill adults down in Renton as a case manager. Okay. So not a not a therapy job, but a clinically related job. So that made you yeah. like massively more yeah. wise and experienced yeah. than because the rest of us were just like, huh? Yeah. Or at and least that, I was. I mean, there's be- a couple other guys like Gary knew he seemed to know stuff. Yeah, you know, but he was a massage therapist, and yet he still seemed. Well, he like was older. Was, he was older. He, he was, was like probably in his 40s, I'm guessing. Something like that, yeah. And had been to a lot of therapy, I think, yeah. and group He'd done therapy. done a lot of personal work. Yeah. Yeah. So... He had that nice therapist um, kind of, I don't know, personality or whatever. Yeah. You know, just like a lovely guy you, do, you would like to talk to. Totally. Yeah. Let's be clear, though. When I got to graduate school, I had a lot to learn. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I always say this story that... Uh, when I was in my first quarter, we I was in a class with Bob, and it's just six students, and we sit around in a circle in a very Antioch fashion <laughs> with no desk and no, of course, no laptops because they didn't really exist right. back then. And we just sit in this sort of powwow circle and talk. Yeah. And I'll never forget that we had an assignment to read about empathy. Empathy, yeah. And we were going to talk about empathy. And as everyone's going around talking about empathy, I, I realized... Everyone understood empathy before they read this article. Mm-hmm. 
I am completely new to this concept of empathy. Now, of course, I had had empathy oh, of course. For, for other people, but I didn't think, I'd never thought to quantify it yeah. or to conceptualize it right. or something. Anyway, so it's hilarious, you know, so you bring up a couple of things here. One is, is the shark thing where Ugh. it, and this is an experienced therapist thing too, Yeah, where the phenomenon in case consultation or clinical discussions is a pissing contest mm-hmm. where everyone's trying to prove that they know things. Like that's the primary concern is like, how do I demonstrate that I know things? Right. And that is not, and that sometimes randomly aligns with what is the best course of action in okay. a case, case consultation. Yeah. Sometimes it is good to sure. say, Hey, you know, this is what I think about this. Right. Um, but really, normally, particularly peer-to-peer, yeah. like as a supervisor, when I'm in group supervision and I'm supervising people, they pay me to spout at them and tell them things. You know what I mean? They want me... To teach. Yeah. They want me to detect things in them and point things out and yeah. to push them, you know? But when you're doing it peer-to-peer, it feels different. Ugh. And peer-to-peer, by definition, they're not as good at it as I should be as a professional pusher and yeah. and know-it-all person. Right. Well, you know? supervisor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I.e. supervisor. Yeah. Um, having said that, supervision is much more about the relationship and about guidance and stuff, but occasionally yeah. it is about like just pointing out things and saying, well, here's what I would do, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, so peer-to-peer, yeah, there's this, there's this thing where it's just like, well, I know things, well, I know things, instead right. of what you're saying, which right. is pointing out supportive things like wow that's really great that you did this or wow you seem to have a good handle on this or your client sounds like they feel really safe with you and yeah you know right yeah so that's an interesting phenomenon and then the book phenomenon too god i i have ptsd (laughs) in me that's being i mean literally like my i have this visceral reaction when i think about people recommending fucking books to me i've talked about this in the podcast before but i think it's been a while where in the, for the first five years of my career, whenever someone would do this to me, because I did a lot of in-home therapy at the time, right. and I was in private practice, right. and so I had to work with a lot of different sorts of people. Yeah. I had to collaborate with social workers, DSHS people, CPS people, psychiatry, uh, uh, you know, other kinds of agency people, right. legal people, lawyers, judges, yeah. and some of them were insecure, and would get into that mode where it's just like, we're talking about a case and we're like, well, you know, she's, she's really struggling with marijuana use and she seems to have emotional issues and she's running away from home. And, you know, so I, you know, I think this is what I'm going to do. Cause I was the therapist I'm working with, I'm working yeah. front line with these clients. Right. And then this other random person sort of chiming in would say like, well, you know, have you read book, blah, blah, blah. And it's, and I'm always in the beginning, I was like, oh, shit, should I have read yeah, that right, book? Yeah, right, right. Um, and, and then I would sort of panic and feel like, I, feel like I was insufficient when I had to admit no. No, I haven't read that book. Right. In fact, I haven't even heard of the fucking thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, it would, and then I entered phase two, which was as soon as they said, have you read? I didn't care what they said uh-huh. after that. I was already fucking pissed. Yeah. Like I, I wanted to throttle them. Yeah. Yeah. Phase three was, oh, honey, 
how funny that you think your stupid little fucking insignificant <laughs> book is that important that I have read it or cared yeah. to or haven't read 10 other books that are better than that oh. fucking piece of shit. Yeah, well, like, right. like that, <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, not a good position, but that's, well, the, that's the current position I'm still in. Sure. Which is like, do you know how many goddamn fucking psychology books there are out there? Oh, Billions. Oh you can't swing a dead cat without hitting four. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are some famous examples. Sure. Like a, like an, a set of Irvin Yalom books. Irvin Yalom. Yeah. Or Great writer. A, a set of Jeffrey Kotler books. Oh, yeah. Or a set of uh, Kohut books, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and it's hilarious to think that, yeah, I've read that book. You know, Howard Zinn, that book's really... Oh, John Kabat-Zinn? Yeah. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn? Oh, maybe I'm thinking the wrong guy. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong guy. The mindfulness book. Oh yeah, Cabot Zinn. Oh Cabot Zinn. Yeah, full catastrophe living. Who am I thinking? Right? Who, yeah, who am I thinking? Howard Zinn. Anyway, oh boy. So there are certain books that are uh, universal, like seminal. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. You're okay. Right. These kinds of things, which I've read a couple pages of. Right. Anyway, so this notion that like one, I've read the book. Now, if you want to say. I've read this book, and, and you probably haven't read it because it's a, it's a small book. Have you read it? And they're like, nope. Well, I learned from this book, blah, 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 and it really changed my life. And that's all you say? Fantastic. Yeah. But this notion that I've read your book that you like, and two, that I'm supposed to have read your book. Yeah, right. And if I haven't read, and this sort of implication, like, you haven't read that book? Right, and, right. And, and sometimes people would say that. Yeah. They'd be like, so... I thought you were a therapist. You haven't read that book. I haven't book. read the book. Oh, yeah. Boy. And I was like, no, like there's a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because there is this subtle um, superiority thing that happens when the question gets asked. I mean, it says more about that person asking the question, have you read this book, than it does about the topic at hand. Right. You know, like I've read this book. Right. And, you know. Right. Let me, let me educate you. Let me. Yeah. Let me give you a goddamn gold star and put well, it on your head for reading a stupid book. Well, wouldn't Good it be better you. if somebody just said, I wonder if, you know, like if they would just reference the book, not because of it has a title, but because there was some bit of knowledge in it that they thought would be useful. Yeah. As opposed to this general, because, you know, the, when you think about it, have I read the book? Have you read this book? It's like, well, even if I have read that book, is that going to solve this particular problem? Is that going to somehow do something right now? I never what thought we, of that. What do I do? Just like, is this like Trivial Pursuit? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's on page 12. Yeah, yeah. That's stupid. It's just... Yeah, I, I've i literally never answered the question, yes. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that, and probably never will. And, and the, every time they've asked that question, I'm sure that it was never answered, yes. You know what I mean? I, no, not once that I recall. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Right. What would happen? You know. So, have you read random book number five hundred fifty-five? Yeah. Uh, yes, I have. Oh, no one's ever answered the yes well, before. Now what? Right. Well, I guess you know what I might gonna say there. Yeah. And you know. Uh, now again, if you're out there and you're one of those people who really is into a few books, hey, great. And you like to recommend them? Sure. Great. But as you deliver it, just. You know, be careful about the way you word it. Yeah, right. What are you trying to say to somebody? Think about what you're really trying to say. Is yeah. it something for them or is it something for you? Right. And 
speaking from your own experience, it's usually a good rule of thumb. Yeah. Uh, so when I run into situations like this, it reminds me of this book that I read, which really inspired me to go in this direction. I don't know if that helps you at all. And maybe there. maybe you're already there. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm, it just reminds me of that. Right. And you sort of explain it, and then the other person can take it or leave it. Yeah. Yeah. And and can feel okay about what they've heard. Yeah. Because there isn't any implied judgment. Yeah. So the original question I asked you was things that novice therapists do? Is that what I was is that what I was saying? Oh, it was something about when we were way back then and we were uh <laughs> Oh, oh, um actually don't, we have to rewind the tape. I don't remember what you asked. <laughs> it was something about what do novice therapists do in, in consultation, in consultation groups, I think? Yeah. And I had a couple more things to say, but we're off topic. Well, were we trying to look official? What were we... Oh! Yeah. See, you're always better than me. Well, you know, I took a class. So, the other official things, uh, you read a book and you want to recommend it. Um, <laughs> how to remember things that... That's right. Uh, how to remember Kirk's tangents. <laughs> Um, was that one of the things that interns will do to appear smarter and to, because it has to do with the metal status exam, is they will use this weird speak when they are taking their progress notes. Oh, yeah. Have we talked about this before? No, but I think I've probably done it. It's this bizarre syntax and language. Yeah. Like, one, they will use abbreviations in their progress notes, which is ridiculous because... One, you're typing, so it's not like you're wasting ink oh. in today's world. Oh, really? They type them? Yeah, they're all on computers oh, now. Oh, jeez, I'm out of loop. For the most part. Okay, got it. Got um, it. Especially the bigger agencies. Uh, do you take hand notes for your oh, clients? Oh, baby, I'm old school. <laughs> uh, so, the, so one, they, they'll, they'll use abbreviations, and that's not acceptable because these files have to be understood by the client. The client needs yeah. to be able to pull it. And it can't be in a foreign language that's only available to you or maybe like clinicians that happen to understand those abbreviations. Right. One, two, the uh, why, you know. So, the, so the other way that they'll talk in these progress notes is they will they'll use like uh, it, it's going to be hard for me to come up with an example, but it'll be like client um, client shows. De- depressive symptoms or something like there's the, I'll just use that example. It's not a great example, but client shows depressive symptoms period. Uh, and then, so I'll just go with that instead of saying the client shows depressive symptoms. Like there's no articles. Yeah. I'm not explaining this very well, uh-huh. but take, take my word for it. There's a way that clinicians will write in a way that they would never write in another situation. Like they would never talk that way Mm-mm. if they were to, if you were to ask them, like write a story about the client session you just had. Yeah. They would add the thes and the ands and the, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They would um, make it a, a, a sentence. A sentence. Yeah. Why would it not be a sentence? Why would it not be a complete sentence? Yeah. Because sometimes the the syntax is so scrunched down that I actually don't know what they're saying. Yeah, right. You know, I, I'm actually like, what, who are you referring to here? To explain, you know, you gotta, when you're communicating, you have to be able to communicate the ideas to the reader. Like, it can't be so scrunched down that I don't even know what you mean anymore. Right. Um, so, I don't know. That came out uh, worse than I thought it would. Well. But anyway. 
I ran into that a lot because when I actually ask my students to write case conceptualizations for me, oh yeah, they'll use that syntax. Oh no, and I'm like, so, and I'll ask them. I'll I'll be like, why are you using this weird way of of writing? Would you talk that way? Yeah, and they're like, I don't know. I I just thought that's the way you're supposed to write. Yeah, I'm like, well, where did you learn that? And you know, it's it's like, well, I don't know. I, I, I think I just I thought I saw other people at my agency right. writing this way. I like, well, what class? T- I mean, yeah. I'm not this ridiculing about it. I'm, no, I'm more like with them and laughing wondering. with them. Yeah, right. I'm just like, uh, at what point? What's the principle behind yeah. this weird syntax? You know, and they have no answers to it. Then yeah. I'd be like, then stop it. Like, yeah. communicate in the normal fashion. Right. The client, the mother, right. did blank, blank, you know, use real verbs and real periods and real language. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's because my estimation is, is because they're insecure and they're trying to come across as technical. And so they're trying, they're using this faux technical language to justify the fact that they're a therapist when, oh, they, f- sure. when they feel like they're an imposter. Right, right, right. But that's yes. not the road to erasing your imposter syndrome, <laughs> I'm here to tell you. no. The road, according to Bob, is just to stop caring, which is probably literally the road. <laughs> okay, so the main purpose of a mental status exam yeah. is not to appear smart. No. It is to detect psychopathology in the client that's either hidden or they're unaware of. Ah, oh, brilliant. Which we never run into, or rarely. Well, I don't treat folks, that's not generally, the population I treat, I don't think that has great relevance. Right. So what situations, what diagnoses or presentations might an MSE and, you know, to find a oh, hidden yeah. or something that they're hiding from right. us, uh, what would or, an MSE or be aware of? Or it's not detectable. Uh, you know that, that phrase, apparent competence? Um, this comes out of DBT, uh, at least it comes out of Linehan. I don't know if it's a DBT thing, but apparent competence is when the person doing the observing, so like a therapist like you or me, um, believes in a certain level of competence that is not actually within the scope of the... Oh, God, listen to me. And now I'm talking like one of these therapist types. <laughs> when we believe that there's something true about somebody that actually isn't true. So we... Um, uh, so for instance, let's say it's dementia, right? You might want an MSC if you're trying to evaluate dementia because um, um, it may not be evident in just a normal conversation. Right. Like just talking. So an MSC is going to be asking very specific questions to ascertain a person's um, executive function, I think, or at least their ability to um, do some reasoning and to know how oriented they are to time and place. Like, is it now? And where are you? And kind of, you know, that sort of thing. I see. And also memory. DBT has to do with apparent competence? No, no. The the problem, uh, the way they talk about it in DBT land is... Um, where you don't have a sense of the degree of a person's suffering based on your experience of them. Oh, like, right. Where they they're suffering have... far worse than you could tell, you know, or or um, surmise based on you know your interaction. I like that. Yeah, and something that only people who work with people like this really know. There, there's a or in general, yeah. There's this notion that well, they looked fine. Yeah. And it's like, well, how would someone look when they are experiencing tremendous grief? Right. Well, they'd be crying. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe 0.1% of the time yeah. they're crying. Right. Uh, the other uh, 99.9% of the time, there's nothing visibly different about them. They look like everybody else riding the bus, too. Right. Yeah. 
So you're saying apparent competence in relation to other kinds of things that might be happening. Right? Yeah. But what specific diagnoses in the DSM? Oh, okay. So probably psychosis. Right. So paranoid psychosis, if someone is uh, worried that the FBI is out to get yeah. them, that they are picking up on secret radio waves from the aliens, that you are a part of ISIS and you're going to kill them or something, they'll sit down and you'll ask them, how you doing? And they'll yeah. be like, I'm fine. Yeah. And the, you'll ask them, are you suffering from any mental issues? And they'll say, nope. Nope. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And the, you won't know that they actually, you know, just yeah. asking them questions won't get at the fact that they are psychotic right. unless there's something very obvious, which the MS, the mental status exam kind of gets to. Yeah. It's supposed to detect it. Yeah. Right. So uh, it's up to us to figure that out in right. particular venues. Right. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, what are some other presentations that might be uh, good to use the MSC to try to detect something that's hidden or they're hidden or they, or they don't even know about. Well, cognitive impairment like dementia. Right. So dementia, stroke, yeah. brain injury. Yeah. If someone had a stroke or, or dementia or brain injury, uh, particularly if it just happened, some kind of incursion, uh, uh, acute yeah. issue, they won't know. And, yeah. and they'll be confused or something. And you'll ask them, how you doing? And they'll be like, I'm fine. Yeah. And in order to get them to the right treatment, sometimes we need to know what's really happening. And they might not be aware of it or they might be trying to hide it. Um, and the last one I thought about was suicide. Oh, so yeah. if someone is intent on suicide right. and we're trying to prevent that from happening, right. they might not cooperate with us. And we might have to figure that out through triangulation of various different yeah. other factors. Right. But but direct inquiry. Right. As opposed to that will emerge because somebody's going to want to tell me. Maybe not. Right. So what sort of venues are clinicians in when they are more likely to do mental status exams? Oh, emergency room for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're a social worker right. who is, or a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse or, or even, I guess, a physician yeah. nurse. You're working in an ER. Someone comes in and they're, 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 they fell down the stairs or something. Right. And, you know, they're walking and talking, but you have to figure out, do they have a brain injury? Um, did they fall down the stairs because they're psychotic? Did they fall down the stairs because they are uh, high on PCP? Yeah, right. So these are all things that an ER assessor would need to know yeah. for very important reasons um, because of maybe they have a, a, you know, a brain bleed or a stroke, yeah. which needs a particular treatment, that kind of thing. Or is there just some illness that's concurrent with their presenting problem? Yeah, yeah. And, and helps to understand yeah. the bigger picture. Right. Uh, what other venues besides the ER? Oh, I should think that um, uh, medical, any, like medical, like inpatient treatment, um, either voluntary or involuntary, um, like client in a nursing home, client in assisted living. Yeah. Um, Somebody with an um, an illness where there's going to be deterioration in functioning over time, like for instance dementia, you might occasionally want to check and see where they're at. Yeah, 
Do you work weekly. with? I mean, because people no. like us don't typically work with people like that. I had I've had a couple over the course of my career, but not in probably twenty plus years. Right. So there are particular venues where that would be more likely. Yeah. Like, it, like if you actually work with elderly people. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, also, psychiatry in, yeah. in general, yeah. you're more likely to see presentations that require an MSE. Right. And also chemical dependency. Oh, I would, yeah. I would say. So those are the ones I could think of. And what we're not saying here is general private practice. Yeah. And, you know, you could make a case for um, people that uh, people like us do that do what we do. There might actually be a hole where there's going to be things that we do not detect because we haven't really checked. Yeah. I don't know if that means I'm going to include an MSC in my intakes. I don't think I'm going to. But but there is a possibility that I'm going to miss something. So given your current or typical client load, can you think of a situation where an MSC or related kinds of observations, formalized observations, would ever be necessary? Given what... Given you, who I treat? Yeah. No. Yeah. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you say, the first thing you said was like, well, you know, we might miss we things. Might. And we might. Yeah. But even if we did, it still doesn't really matter because our, the, the things that we're facing and the, the treatment plan that we're providing and what's expected of us doesn't really involve that kind of thing. Yeah. Like there's a chance that one of our clients could suddenly become psychotic or, yeah. or suddenly take PCP and, and come into your office uh, in a state that right. is uh, different than normal. Right. But I don't care. If, that, if they want to come into my office high on PCP and that's the way they want to do therapy and they want to hide that from me, uh, fine. Like that, it's not my job to be the PCP police. <laughs> it, it's, it's, I'm, a, I'm hired as a therapist, you know, and, and that, it's not an expectation. On, it's not the standard of care either for yeah. private practitioners who... Uh, like myself, who deal primarily with very, uh, you know, what do you call underhanded pitch, low ball? What what do you call things that are easy? Slow pitch. Slow pitch. What do you call no. things that are easy? Easy. Like That's isn't it like a like a slow pitch? Soft, soft, softball, soft softball things, softball, softball things. things. Yeah. yeah. So softball clients like. Um, That's a relative term, though, because we're not minimizing the suffering that people who come to you for help. No, but, but. the issues are relationship issues, yeah. people going through divorce, people going through infidelity, people going through oh, yeah. um, transitions with their kids. Right. But often, really, 95% of the time, it has something to do with their marriage. Yeah. It's conflict, right. conflict in their marriage. Right. And, of course, these can involve quite deep attachment injuries, well, see, personality that's, disorders. That's where I'm going to put my money. That's where I'm going to put my focus is on stuff like that because that's relevant right almost exclusive almost all the time it's relevant right what i'm not dealing with yeah. is people coming in on pcp randomly no or people suddenly being psychotic no or someone having a stroke or being at risk of that sort of thing so yeah. so it's it's not it's really not relevant in my profession i'm trying to think of the no. last last client i would have had so I can think of one client where it would have been kind of relevant. It was 10 plus years ago, and I had a client who was bipolar. And he would come into sessions in a state that was different each time, seemingly oh. kind of escalating. And in my normal mode, I was just, hey, what do you want to work on? And 
he'd sit down, he'd sort of ramble and he was confusing and I'd be like, well, I'm trying to understand what, what do you want to work on? Yeah. And it took me a while to sort of realize this guy is mentally ill yeah. and you know, private practice ther- therapy is probably not the best place for him. And eventually, you know, he terminated and I referred to him to somewhere else. But, yeah. but it might have been helpful if I was more formal in my assessment and yeah. really looking to see if someone has... Because he didn't sit down and say, I have bipolar. Yeah. He didn't sit down and say, the reason why I won't be able to identify a goal in today's session is because I'm confused because I'm symptomatic right now and I'm right. medicated or something. Right. So anyway... Hey, I have a question for you. It's related. Yeah. How has your practice changed as a result of your PsyD program? That's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> you said earlier that my... So for people out there that don't know, I, like Bob, got my master's degree in my 20s. You were in your late 20s. 28. And so we were pretty young. We yeah. got So we get a master's degree, yeah. and we the master's degree is very focused... So your degree was a year and a half. Mine was two years, which is still pretty short. Yeah. And we learn primarily the basics of how to diagnose and how to write a treatment plan and how to provide counseling or therapy. And some background stuff about um, some personal development stuff. Yeah. And some background stuff about the um, land of psychology as a field. You did? I don't remember that at all. Well, theories of personality, that sort of thing. Yeah, Which is, uh, and so but I didn't comprehend that. Oh well, class comprehend—that's a different matter. <laughs> yeah. There's some, there's some, there was a smattering of training in it. I remember I did not like that class. I didn't really care for our teacher, but um, uh, in many ways it's historic in that they just kind of start with you know Freud essentially and Freud's you know kind of method or whatever, and then work through you know whatever the waves of like yeah back and yeah. And Skinner in. and yeah, yeah, and and um, uh, so in some sense, it's 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 a history of, of the field of psychology. In some yeah. sense, it's it's um, psychologic theory. Right, it's a little bit of both. I remember taking that class. I, I it was a prereq, so I took it out from another university. We, oh yeah, no, the class. I'm, remember the class I'm thinking of is uh, theories. Oh, it was theories of counseling. Right. We that, that was together. each week was a different form of oh, therapy. God, it was so awful. Yeah. And I had San, Sandy who died. Sandy Maggart. A couple of years ago. Oh, sorry uh, to hear it. Yeah. Not my favorite teacher. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was a long time ago. She was pretty young and inexperienced. Lovely, lovely person, though. She was one of my favorite oh, that's co-workers to work with. Oh, great. Yeah, good. And she always, I don't know, she, Whenever I'd walk into staff meetings, she always would light up and, hey, Kirk, sit with me. And she gave me Mariners tickets once because nice. she loved the Mariners. Um, you know, that's an impossible class to teach in 10 weeks. I guess. She just didn't really know much about it. She she knew a lot. She, the thing that she really knew a lot about that she would travel the world giving lectures on was yeah. using humor and therapy. Oh, well, no, that's that's worth I'd take that class. Yeah. yeah. She wrote books. She, cool. Gave lectures. I remember she went to Europe a lot of times. Jeez. It was it was a big deal. That's great. And the saddest thing was she is gearing up for retirement. And this was back when our program was a lot smaller. Uh-huh. Right now, our like the CFT program is three to four times bigger than it was four years ago. Oh, lordy. Yeah. And 
back then it was like really a family and the, the, the I was the new guy. And so everyone else had been there forever. You know, you had right. Ned Farley, Paul David, right. Gwen Jones. Oh yeah. Uh, all the, all that crowd. Yeah. And so, and Sandy Mager was one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sandy was going to retire so it was this really big deal and everyone celebrating lots oh, of parties. Nice. She's talking about, yep, I got six months left and then I'm out of here. Right. And here's what I'm going to do. And she had this apartment on Lake Union, oh. uh, sort of up the hill towards Queen Anne. Yeah. That she'd lived there forever. And again, she went to every Mar- home Mariners game and she, nice. she, she had this routine that, and she's like, well, when I retire, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. Nice. And then within like weeks of her retirement, she she got ill, oh. like terribly ill. Oh. I can't, I don't know what it was exactly. And then within months, she was dead. Oh, poor lady. She retired, and she was, I think, in her sixties. Yeah, yeah. And it was oh, just that's tragic. Yeah, it just felt so. I, it's like universe. Why didn't you give her at least a couple years? Yeah, right. Of retirement, right. So anyway, but yeah, that class of how, you know, 10 weeks of, let me teach you every theory of therapy. Forget it. And one of the weeks was on reality therapy. Oh, I don't, I, 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 no, I don't remember that one. Yeah. I remember one week was on Gestalt. Oh yeah. Which is like, how do you teach it? One One week was um, psychoanalysis. Yeah. I had to do those. We had to do those practice sessions. Like free association. Yeah. Free association. I couldn't do it. I could, I would just sit there and quiet. I was not going to say a damn word. Yeah. It was just, it's just so, yeah. Yeah. Um, So. So anyways, uh, we were talking about what's the difference in your practice given your Continued learning after a master's degree. So Bob and I got our master's degrees when we were in the 90s, when we were in our 20s. And then as I became an instructor, I was told that in order for me to rise in the ranks, I need to have a doctorate. So I went back and got my doctorate uh, at at Antioch because it was half off the tuition. And tuition for a doctorate, especially a PsyD, is upwards of $140,000. Oh, good Lord. So saving $70,000 is pretty, pretty appealing. Pretty appealing. Yeah. Plus, I'd be, I was living across the street from right. the university. Yeah. And the idea of commuting to another university right. to, to get a doctorate. And then also, my were, colleagues were the ones teaching me. Teaching, yeah. Right. So it just felt like it, was, it would be a good idea. Yeah. Would you do it over again if you had to? Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, I probably should have considered master's or doctorates in other professions. I chose PsyD because, so PsyD is a psychology doctorate, which trains you to become a psychologist, which is really different than marriage and family therapy yeah. and, and pretty significantly different from the counseling world too. Because they try to do everything. Yeah, They try to be ex- psychologists and the training for psychology, they try to teach you to be experts on how to do research. research not only just how to do research but like really high-end statistics yeah yeah know how to how to understand it yeah how to do it how to actually um yeah like um Anovas search it. for and manovas yeah yeah i remember and p-values and yeah. sigmas and not only just like how to read it which yeah. i've sort of retained to this day but actually like understanding the underpinnings you know yeah 
and uh, you know, p hacking and all that stuff has really benefited me in terms of my understanding of of how research works. But also, qualitative research is fucked too, man. Yeah, like it's not just it's not just asking people open ended questions. Yeah. there are some like phenomenal phenomenological There's, research, which is one I did. Yeah, goes back to like Heidegger and Husserl yeah. and uh, and other, you know other, these um, high ended confusing existentialists oh wow yeah you like can't it, read them it's based on that it can't be read bracketing and yeah. <laughs> understanding the hermeneutic uh, uh landscape and the horizons of societal understandings like it's crazy yeah it's rigorous so, so not only research but also uh advancing your ability to be a therapist because it assumes you don't have a master's degree oh, so i so, didn't know that yeah so a psychology doctorate assumes you know nothing about how to be a counselor. So they are teaching many people who have had, hadn't had a drop of education or experience as a therapist. So, so, that, so, right. they're, trying, so they're trying to teach massive amounts of research, massive yeah. amounts of, of how to be a counselor. Clinical training, yeah. And massive amounts of assessment. Yeah. Which is a whole other ball of wax. That's a whole thing. How to obviously diagnose. <laughs> I mean, it's actually embarrassing. So... When I, I didn't really care about assessment when I was getting my uh, doctorate. And so I didn't really pay attention. And plus, our, frankly, our teachers weren't very good because mm-hmm. the program was kind of new. Mm-hmm. It was like, I don't know, five or six yeah, years old. Yeah, and so a lot of the instructors were just, you know, hastily chosen because they had a warm body and a heartbeat and... Uh, had an intent to teach that it, whether or not they could or not was completely secondary to all that. They were cutting their teeth right alongside you. Yeah. And so when I came to my oral exam, which was a case presentation, oh, wow. trying to justify my treatment and diagnosis and all this stuff, I was operating basically on my clinical experience knowledge and I was based, and I and I thought what the case presentation was because no one had told me differently was for me to present a conceptualization theoretically. So I spent ninety percent of my time writing and thinking about how to conceptualize this client within an object relations point of view. Oh, cool! So I was super ready to go on that. Yeah. But my oral exam professors couldn't have cared less about that. They wanted to know about the diagnosis. They wanted to know about what measures I was using. Oh, wow. They really? wanted to know about how I was tracking that. They wanted to know about, like, I don't know, sort of specific ethical concerns huh. that I didn't think were very relevant, but I should be able to, like, speak to very readily kind uh. of thing. And I'll just never forget they – because I had diagnosed her with PTSD, which she had, and I, I could justify it. Sure. But they asked me, they said – so have you done any measures? And I was like, uh, no. But that's what psychologists do. They, yeah. they, they're much more likely to use these measures of documenting, you know, numerically the PTSD symptoms over time. And so they asked me, are, are you using a measure? And, and, I, and I said, uh, no. And I'm saying, shit, was I supposed to? Yeah, right. Because no one told me I was supposed to. And plus, can't I just monitor that the way I normally do? Why yeah. do I have to use a measure? seems like an annoying thing. And they're like, oh, okay, well, if you were to use a measure for PTSD, what would it be? And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. And this is at a point in my my doctorate when I should have known 
10 different PTSD assessments uh, and measures by that point. Like I should have retained that information, but my instructors were so bad because I, because after this, I sort of looked back and I was like, oh, that's what that teacher was supposed to be teaching me. Like they were supposed to be teaching me like memorize these or try out these yeah. and get to know them. Become familiar and but they never did. Yeah. And, and so, Jeez. so I don't know what my professors thought of me at the time, because I don't know if they thought I was an idiot or they thought, what are these instructors teaching these students? I don't know what they thought. Sure. Um, I passed, thank God. But, but anyway, so how did it change? Um, while I was getting my doctorate, I don't think it changed. I thought it was changing me very little uh-huh. because I, I felt like a lot of it was below me. Because, again, half of the, my classmates were in their 20s the way I was when I didn't even know what empathy was. Yeah. And they were just as ignorant as I was. And this would have been like 15 years prior. So I, I had 15 years of education and experience. I taught for, yeah. you know, 10 of those right. years. Right. And so I'm just, I'm just like, oh, this is so you like... You were a seasoned therapist by then. Yeah. And, and I just, it's just like, this is so like boring. Yeah. But looking back, I think it it really did teach me a lot of things and furthered my understanding. Could I have learned it in a in a, you know a quarter of the time probably? Mm. But um, in terms of my, so you want to know about my counseling abilities? Yeah, you? I think it gave me an opportunity. I'll just that's definitely what I know is it gave me an opportunity to really formalize my yeah. understanding of clients. Yeah. Because I had to write a lot of papers and I had a lot of I had to think about and justify to people who could flunk me. That's a very specific feeling. <laughs> right? It's it's one thing to be like, well, I'm going to give this some thought. It's a whole other thing to say I have to have this so tight and yeah. so uh, yeah, I don't know, just so competent that yeah. it will it yeah. will stand like even the most you know yeah. annoying evaluator of me. So I think that it helped me to formalize because I think yeah. back to the way that well, I think back to some of the first papers I wrote about clinical stuff in the PsyD program, right? Even. And I cringe because I think, boy, you kind of thought you knew what you were talking about, but geez, you did you really did not. Uh-huh. And I and I had good professors. Uh, you know, two or three that were instrumental in that. Um, one was Phil Cushman, who is a known genius and wise man. Wonderful. Uh, and he took very close care when I would write papers for him. And I'll just never forget that I, I spent all this time on this on this paper, and part of it was me trying to put forth my own model of how people work. Yeah. And it was sort of a a weird version of object relations. And I gave it to him and I was so proud of it. I just thought like, this yeah. is, this is great. Great. And he gives it back to me and he's like, you know, he's like, so I really like what you're doing here. And I think if you really develop this, you might actually get it published in the APA uh, history journal. I think, I think if you really develop it, what he meant by that is you're about 2% down the road. What I thought he meant at the time was I'm like 90% down the road. I could just yeah. publish this right. You know, I later I asked him, I said, when you told me that this was publishable, what percentage was I down the road? He's like, Oh, you know, not very far. I think you have the beginnings of something. Anyway, then he said, I think, you know, this is pretty good. I think if you develop it, but the second half, when you talk about your theory of how people work, I have to tell you, it's not convincing. Uh-huh. And that's all he said. That's nice feedback. Not convincing. Yeah. And I was like, 
That's an interesting word, not convincing. And since that time, I have used that phrase. Oh, yeah. That's gold. It's just because it's, it's like there might be something there, yeah. but I'm not convinced. Yeah. And I trust that if you really care to convince me, then you'll go for you, it. You might. And give it another shot. Right. But as it stands, not convincing. It's not discouraging. No. And it's truthful. It's truthful. I'm not saying, you know, he didn't say I was stupid. No. He didn't say that. Um, it's not critical. No. It's just like, I'm sorry, I'm just not convinced. Yeah, actually, he's giving you feedback, telling you about his own experience. He's not telling you anything about you. Um, and he doesn't need to. Right. That's but, really elegant. But philosophically, it's it's a more precise and helpful thing to say, which is like, yeah. if you want to develop this, you yeah. have to make it more convincing. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to get there precisely because yeah. I'm not really sure what you're trying to get at, but right. just know that one reader is not convinced yeah, right. by what you're saying. You know, I don't know if it's true. I think it is true. Since you finished your PsyD, that's one of the things I've noticed about you is that you are precise, particular, very clear and direct, and have a great empathy. Oh, interesting. For Oh, yeah, there's the E word. Empathy for human suffering. So you were, when you asked that question 10 eons ago, <laughs> um, you were actually thinking about how you've observed me different than before. Yeah, I was curious. I have, I, yeah, I was, I, I had that in the back of my head and I was thinking, you know, given the way you come across, you know, I get to watch you doing this podcast and get to listen to what you have to say. I was thinking, you know, I, I can only imagine that as a result of your training that you're just a better therapist. Not that you weren't a good therapist, but that you're a better one. I would like to think that it, it, it did help. Like I said, while I was going through it, it felt like it wasn't, yeah, especially the sure. classes that were focused on, on um, t- you know, counseling, counseling skills. Counseling practice, yeah. Yeah, they, they, I had the super basic counseling skills, and we would do role plays, and yeah. I would watch my classmates yeah. struggling the way that people, Anybody would. people do, and, yeah. I, and it was just hard to, tedious to, to cope with as, yeah. a, as a fellow student. Right, right. But some of the theoretical classes and the uh, opportunity—that's the word I want to use. It's yeah. like it, it, and I and I took it when I when I had a chance. I, I was like, you there, worked hard, man. Yeah, like there was. I took a social psychology class. Oh, neat. And the the big there was one big assignment, and you're you're supposed to write one big paper on some. You could pick whatever social psychology topic you wanted to work on. And then you also presented on it. And so I could have done a 10, 15 page paper that was just, I could pump that out in, you know, three or four days. I could do a really boring presentation and I would have been fine. And I would have just, you know, I wouldn't have been knocked down for that. They would have said, okay, great, mediocre job, student number 10, please sit down. And student number 11, get up here. And instead, I used that opportunity to really do a humongous deep dive into a topic and really learn it. And the thing I chose, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, was evolutionary psychology. Oh, okay. Which is only loosely associated with social psychology, sure. by the way, but it was one of the topics available that the professor provided. Cool. And I did a massive deep dive. I bought books. I read everything I possibly could. 
my paper ended up being something like 50 pages long. And I turned it in and I told the professor, I said, I'm sorry, I went a little over, over, you know, I was overzealous. Feel free to only read like the first 10 pages. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't have to read the whole thing. And she was like, oh, okay, fine. And my presentation, I tried to make it into kind of like a workshop. Nice. It wasn't just me with a yeah, PowerPoint. I tried to actually demonstrate. I, I even had this thing where I gave different uh, qualities on a piece of paper to people in the room. And then I said, okay, everyone who isn't afraid of snakes is now dead because a, you got bitten by a snake. Right. Okay, who's left? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm a person who is afraid of snakes. I am interested in other people. I like eye contact, these kinds of things. And I tried to demonstrate that when you have pressures on a population, a species, then things start to get eliminated and certain things start to be selected to be passed down. Okay, all you have kids. Yeah. Now every, you know, and no one needed to do that. I don't know how well it went over. That was my attempt. It's interesting though. It makes you think. Uh, It made me think. And I... So so every chance I got, I, I used that opportunity to say, okay, how can I really further myself? Yeah. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this. Sure. Maybe I'll spend double the amount of time, triple the amount of time, but I really want to make this useful to me yeah. in terms of my understanding. So I could see how, and I, you know, it's, I don't think no one's ever told me this because I don't think anyone has known me the oh. way you have oh, okay. in yeah. this way. Yeah. Because we would talk shop yeah, yeah. periodically yeah, over yeah. the years. Right. And... And it's interesting to hear you say to me that you see a difference. Mm. And it, it is interesting to think how much the society had anything to do with that, because it might well, not have. It might not have. I might have just developed. But, you know, I think there must have been, right? There just well, there just must have just been. Sort of seems, you know, intuitive that it would be. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, you're also still practicing. So you're the, the natural development that comes with practice. You're doing this. The podcast has had a huge effect. Yeah, I should think it would, yeah. Because like um, an oral exam or writing a paper or giving a presentation, I am opening myself up to scrutiny. Yeah. And have made mistakes and learn not to make those mistakes and learn different ways of thinking that lead me to right-headedness as opposed to wrong-headedness. And... And as I talk, I start to solidify my ideas, right? Talking really does that. Yeah. Yeah. Or taking notes or preparing for something or something. And every episode, I'm doing something that, like this episode where we're doing an MSC, I've never really learned it. And so Mm -hmm. it gave me this excuse. So think about every episode, I'm learning about something that I didn't really know before and how all those things start to fold in on each other right. and reinforce each other and support. And and by the end of 10 years of doing this, all these separate vectors of learning culminate in this general wisdom about humans and our profession well, right. and how to do a podcast. It's it's a very strange phenomenon, honestly. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you spend 10 years on anything, you'll well, eventually get somewhere with hopefully, yeah. something. Right, right, right. Yeah. Say, what do they say, 10,000 hours? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm curious, is there something specific, and this is just me being narcissistic, and oh. you know, to feel like you don't have to, you don't feel like you have to say anything positive. Folks, Kirk thinks he's more narcissistic than he is. <laughs> well, however narcissistic I am, it's, it's not, I'm sure it's not pleasant for other people to experience, but <laughs> is there anything specific that you saw in me? Because, because, because I could imagine there are some specific 
Because I remember... Yeah, I can think of something. Okay, tell me. Um, Last fall... Was it last fall? Maybe the fall before? When did you move here? Uh, A year ago. Yeah, okay, so it was a year and a half ago whenever we started doing this. We did an episode on BPD, and uh, I listened to you talk about... um, uh, the development of borderline personality disorder as just really a, um, the fallout from a series of injuries. Yeah. And you talked about it from an attachment perspective, which of course I really appreciate. Um, but you talked about it with such um, uh, empathy, of course, but with, um, you know, more like just phenomenological observation as opposed to judgment laden words, you know, like, cause you know, our profession gets all wigged out about that shit. Um, about that shit, about BPD and, you know, all that stuff. And these are like the nightmare clients or whatever. You talked about it in a very straightforward way that I found very validating. Hmm. Yeah. I did not learn that in my psyche. I can tell you that much for that sure. Right. Okay. Uh, I didn't, I can't think of a single person who had a sympathetic view towards B- BPD in my Where, Where'd you learn it? That's a very good question. Yeah. I, I think where I learned it, well... I, but again, as as all the things sure. sort of coming together, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm sure there are things from my psyche and otherwise that that helped to emerge that like contributed to your. Yeah, I mean, sure. maybe some Kernberg stuff that I read, but honestly, even Kernberg doesn't super resonate with me the way that I think about borderline yeah. or any personality disorder for that matter. I think what it what it was was a combination of academic rigor. And professional understanding of of the landscape of the language, because that's a lot of it is just understanding how people talk about this and what the assumptions are based. You know, it, yeah. It's a lot of the ability to conceptualize and communicate is that understanding the world that we live in and also understanding the world that non-clinicians live in and how to explain things to them. But honestly, what it was was probably if I was to identify two main things. One is, is that one of my very first clients who was so significant in my professional development had a pretty good case of borderline. And I knew it back then. And she was very stressful as a client, but I really liked her. Yeah. And I really liked working with her, but boy, was it stressful. Yeah. It was a lot of sweaty armpits. Yeah. She was very hostile and Mm -hmm. very, accusatory and very upset at me every time we talked, but also very appreciative. Uh, you know, I think I've pointed out one yeah, of the letters on my wall over there is, is from her. Right. A, so that was a major factor. And that, I was 26 years old, yeah, 27. Just starting. And imagine how much learning you would do week to week. Well, and, yeah. And reading and talking with other people. And so that was a big thing that opened my eyes to what borderline is. And then the other piece that I'll say is my own investigation on my own personality uh-huh. and attach how attachment and narcissistic spectrum, borderline spectrum, preoccupation, avoidance, yeah. histrionic spectrum uh, plays a role. And I guess the society helped a little bit with this because when I administered personality inventories to myself, right. There were elements of borderline histrionic, narcissistic, antisocial, you know, psychopathy. That you know, because everyone's not. It, it doesn't say you're this or that. It just says on the scale from one to one forty, you're at a forty-five. Right. You're below the threshold of a T value of sixty, which means that you're not likely diagnosable. Right. But you are 
you're you're not as low as other people are. Right. You're higher than a lot of people. Right. <laughs> and that was interesting idea. So I guess that did help in that way. And that talk about personality and the history, actually. So the PsyD taught me a lot about the history of of psychotherapy and psychology and how personality was because we tend, you know, in a simplistic way, if you emerge from your master's degree, you're like, oh, borderline. Yeah, that's in the DSM. Right. That's what you think about. Right. The DSM label was adopted from a massive, massive library of research, case studies, writing, philosophy about that particular personality type yeah. that didn't care about a diagnosis or a threshold. Right, right. It just was an observation of like, well, here's this type of personality on this spectrum. And then the DSM adopted that and said, well, how do we formalize this so we can be medical and start charging insurance companies, essentially, <laughs> which is a wonderful effort. It p- p- completely justified our, our profession. Imagine sure. us without it. Oh, well, right. But isn't something a lot we of should, wheels. What? We be inventing a lot of wheels, right. each of us. We shouldn't be looking to the DSM, though, to provide us with an understanding of borderline personality. No, no. You, you know. So I guess it did help in that way. But to me, yeah, it's been mostly that, that client and other clients and then my own understanding. Because when, yeah. when you look at yourself, yeah, yeah. you get it. Yeah. You're like, oh, that thing I do when I'm hurt and that tendency I have when I'm hurt yeah. and the weird fucking thoughts that go through my head. Imagine if my attachment injuries were worse. Yeah how amplified they would be. And right. boy, I see that in other people and just sort of making those connections. And then mm-hmm. that's what led me to my, under, to my, if I was to you know, describe that, that's what led me to my current conceptualization of borderline. All right. I mean, you can relate to that, right? Oh, yeah. You think of yourself. You, <laughs> you look to your own personality. I mean, we all should, I think. Because we all have, we're all borderline. We're all histrionic, at sure. least a little bit. We're all antisocial. We're all narcissistic, slightly, at least slightly. Haven't we concluded that I'm a little more borderline than you? <laughs> uh, your call. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, has that helped you? Has what thinking of myself that way? Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd say the thing that hel- has helped me most is thinking about myself in terms of my own attachment injuries, how they manifest. And um, honest to God, almost every session I'm, I work with people who have, um, when I work with people who have trauma and abuse histories, I like, I think things about them based on my own experience of being alive. And they're usually, they're usually at least relevant, if not accurate. Yeah. Like last week I said to this woman, a uh, couple session, and we were talking about, uh, you know, something in their marriage and how something emerges for her, you know, and it has to do with her trauma. And I said to her at the end of the session, sometimes you wonder if you even exist outside your own utility. And she like froze. And yeah, she said, yeah, that's how I feel all the time. Right. And I know that just from a sense of her, the little bit of sense I have of her, but I know that because of me. Really? Yeah. Yeah, what how, it, I, how I know about how I know about myself. What is that? What is that? I can take a guess as to what that means, but what does that mean? It means, to be honest with you, and this might sound a little weird, I'm not sure I exist. Right. Like I'm not sure that I'm real. Yeah, I know that I function, like I function as a counselor. All right, fine, that's a utility. Utility. That's a 
I function in certain ways as a friend and I function in ways as a husband that don't have anything to do with who I am as a individual or human, right. but everything to do with what I can provide. Right. It's all straight survival. Yeah. But it, it's also very unfulfilling. Yeah. And um, uh, frustrating. To only uh, yeah. have that without a yeah. sense of yeah. who you are. Yeah. And but every now and again, I actually realized I, I exist. I'm a real human. And it's like, it's really hard to remember. Yeah. And it's really hard to hold on to. And um, there's a lot of suffering that goes with the um, habit of thinking that I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, the so you asked me. Well, no, I want to highlight this for a second. Okay. So the this you're describing really eloquently and phenomenologically the experience of lacking a self if yeah. you if you no, that's fine yeah yeah you have it and everyone's on a spectrum there too sure and cuz i often talk about that and i when i talk about it cuz i don't have a lack of self mm-hmm. i have uh spectrum issues shall we say but this I can't relate to. And when I would work with clients who would run into that, what you're talking about, it took me... And when I would hear lack of self and this sort of thing sure. in my early training, I really had no idea what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to highlight that you're explaining to the listeners who can relate, like this is a way of describing that experience. It is born out of mistreatment early in life when we are at a point when we are susceptible or supposed to develop a self during that time. We're supposed to develop a sense of who we are, of, of it, but we only develop that when people reflect to us and tell us, right? They're yeah. like, I see that you're upset. Right. I see you're sad. I see you're happy. I see you want a cookie. I see you, <laughs> you know? Let me tell you, because without that, we're just unbridled action people, and feeling people, but we don't really take a time to think like, this is who I am. And then once you have this sense of like, this is who I am, this is my emotions, these are my wants, these are my thoughts, then you can start thinking like, well, at what direction is myself going in? You know, I, yeah. I have a self. Where is this self headed? Yeah. What does it want? What is the meaning of its life? And without that, or with diminished that, then, right, you're just in survival mode. You're just trying to stay out of trouble. Yeah. You're just trying to, like, eke out a life that is not painful without there being a sense of, like, well, what do I want? Who am I? Yeah. Where am I going? What's the purpose of this whole thing? Um, is a very common thing, because a lot of people have been oh, neglected sure. uh, to varying degrees during yeah. that period of our lives when we're, say, two to four or something. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to describe and hear you talk about because okay. it, it helps me to understand that, that experience. Because, as you say, it's very distressing. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel good. No. Because to me, when I hear people talk about it, I think, well, that, that, would that just be trippy? You know? It sounds like trippy to me. But people universally talk about it like it's horrific. It's a horrific feeling. It's a... You know, people will describe to me, it's like a vast abyss that just opens up and there's nothing there. Yeah. And the thing that I like to say is that you have a self, Bob. You're not asking me to help you with this. 
you absolutely have one. You just you just can't access it. You know, we used the metaphor in a previous episode about you open a door to a bedroom and the lights are off and you say there's nothing in there. Well, right. But the problem is you, you don't have access to the light switch. Yeah. And once you turn on a light switch, it's like, oh, there's a bed, there's posters on the wall, there's a dresser. Oh, right. there's there's things in here. Yeah. But it looked like there was nothing in there. Right. There were no feelings. There was no personality. There was no wants. There was no agency. There was just nothing, you know? But that was because no one spent the time to say to Bob, I'm observing this about you, and I see this about you. And then you think, oh, me. Okay, that's right. There's a me in the world. Okay, I'm, I'm, tur- I'm turning on the dimmer switch of the bedroom. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but I interrupted Actually, you. I think that um, one of the things I appreciate most about my friendship with you is being near you when you have a self like like one of the things i valued about knowing you is you can go in your own room and look around and see what's there and be okay with it and be cool with it and talk about it and i don't know how to do that Mm. i get little glimpses of how to do that by spending time with you Hmm. like you're watching me look at my bed and you're like, oh, maybe I can look at my bed too. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I am happy to be of that service. I'm terribly sad for you that you can't, or it's harder for you to uh, be happy with your furniture Uh because, you know, you're a better person than I am in a lot of ways. Oh, come on. Um, so it just, that makes me sad to think about. Thanks. Um, so getting back, you know, it's funny, like this episode is about an MSC. We're probably going to have to do a different intro because I don't think we properly teased this episode. Poor Nick. (laughs) Uh, yeah, we haven't even got to the goddamn types of affect. Um, the other thing is that, uh, well, let me ask you. So, you know, when we, first graduated oh, yeah. in 97, mm. we would talk shop after that. And given my uh, highly lit bedroom and and narcissistic tendencies, I or know-it-all tendencies, let's put it that way, I would uh, spout about uh, uh, shop things. And we would talk about clients or concepts or something, and maybe over a couple of drinks, oh, if you sure. will. Yeah. And do you see a progression from that to now at all? You mean in the way you talk? In how wrongheaded I might have been in the past? Because <laughs> I remember more than once you taking issue with things that I would say back then. Yeah. Yeah. If you're asking me, then yes. And And that's just like everybody. We all have a learning curve. But I, you were ahead of me back then, and so uh, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, is that part of your thing, too? It's just like, well, I wonder if the site he has anything to do with him uh, being less wrong-headed like I observed in the past. Yeah, I've wondered that. <laughs> do you have a specific story of that? Um, no, more like just watching this evolution of fabulousness. <laughs> well, I remember one time. When that pops into my head every once in a while. We were, I think, in a taxi cab of all things, and, oh, and we're in, and I th- we're, think we're driving in front of the Canlis, heading north on ninety nine, probably coming home. I guess I don't know. Uh, 
You're probably going to have your place in Wallingford. Yeah, maybe. And uh, I was have... saying it wasn't it wasn't bad. Okay. It, I was saying something about. Well, maybe it wasn't this time, but anyway, I remember one time I said something. I implied that people who are psychotic, schizophrenic people, are more prone to violence. Oh yeah. And you were very quick to say. I don't know exactly what I said, but yeah. it was some offhand comment, and you were like, "Whoa, whoa, wait! People who have schizophrenia, psychotic people, are not any more likely." About you know, you said something yeah. along those lines, and I just remember feeling like you had smacked my oh, hand. God, no, no, no! Yeah, it was good. It okay. was good. It was it was important. It was. Uh, I do this all the time. I mean, when people, I I don't make any friends. Like I just had a party uh, for the Oscars the other day. And of course, the topic of Kevin Hart came up. Do you know this whole? Oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. And all I said was to the someone who was extremely politically heated about the whole thing and was like very upset that Kevin Hart was not given a chance to host the Oscars because of a extremely homophobic joke that he said. All I said was, "Well, I just didn't really think his apology was sufficient." You know, I, I, was, I think it's great he apologized, but I, it just didn't seem like a sufficient apology. And this guy was just like so incensed oh, by it. Jeez. And and a lot of people were not on my side. In fact, I can't think of anyone. There were a few other people chiming in. No one was really on my side about this. Everyone was either moderate or like on this other guy's side. And so, but I felt like someone needs to say something. <laughs> There's no gay people in the room, mm-hmm. one. And I imagine that many gay people would think differently about Kevin Hart's statement and apology. I mean, Kevin Hart said something to the effect of, if my son was gay, I would kill myself. Yeah. It wasn't, I'm not even missing words. It was literally a joke. That was the premise of this bit that he had. Yeah. Or I would kill my son or something. It I think was, it was kill my son, but yeah. I don't remember. Something I may like be that, wrong. Right? Yeah. It was, it was severe. It was like amazingly yeah, severe. And this wasn't yeah. like 1987. This was 10 years 10 ago. 10 years or ago. Yeah. When no one thought that was okay. It yeah. It right. wasn't, or very few people. And okay, it's a joke. And if you are being asked to apologize, then I would have said something like, yeah, when I look back on it, it's pretty cringeworthy. And, you know, there are a lot of jokes that I've said in the past. It's hard to come up with comedy. It's hard to come up with things that are that people think are funny. And, I don't know, I just felt like that was a funny bit. And I, I didn't literally mean I would kill my son. Of course, I would love him if he was gay. But I was just I was just making a joke. But honestly, hearing other people's opinions about it makes me realize that I was tapping into something that's pretty awful in our society, and I feel I feel really bad about it. Yeah. And I wish I hadn't said it. And I've learned something from this. And I have to say, I grew up in a really homophobic world, and my jokes were influenced by that. Mm-hmm. And that's not good. And I'm sorry. Like, that's an apology, right? That's an apology. That's not his apology. That's not an excuse. Right. His, it's just an apology. Yeah, his apology was something like, was, you know... 5% of that, anyway. Yeah. So my point is is that it's okay to slap people's hand when they w- are being what I believe to be deserving of having a hand slap, as long as that's within the, you know, f- upon the foundation of a good relationship, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I know what you mean. But anyway, I feel like you did that a lot to me back then. Not, Not a lot, but, but occasionally. 
because you knew more than I did at, about yeah. some things. And so, uh, and you weren't afraid to to tell me so. So that's what I thought you were thinking of when you were asking me about. Did your site? Did your site like eliminate those sillinesses? <laughs> um. Okay, so let's go on with the MSC. <laughs> do you remember ever getting trained? I know we talked about this a little bit, but do you remember any module in your bachelor's degree about, about mental status exam? Not in bachelor's degree. I had a little bit of training in it at the psych hospital where I used to work. Um, uh, it wasn't so relevant for children because they don't generally have psychotic symptoms. It's rare. Uh, and I had some training in it, um, sort of less formal training, but some training in it at the mental health clinic I worked at down Renton, down okay. Renton when I moved here. Like sufficient training or no. yeah. No, quick uh, and dirty. Yeah. So I can't remember ever being trained in it. Yeah. I think marriage and family therapists are even less likely to yeah. come across the need for it. Okay. So let's get into different parameters of affect. So the different parameters are type and this is, these are kind of my, these are kind of my, pro, pro. so before moving forward, I just want to say that there are many different classifications and definitions and stuff. This is essentially my system based on the literature. So we have type of affect, congruency of affect, range of affect. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the three. So uh, let's do the easiest one first. Congruency of affect. You're either congruent or incongruent. Or another word that people use is appropriate versus inappropriate. Appropriate, I really just it's don't a loaded like, word, but yeah, I get what they're getting at. But yeah. congruent is more precise. Yeah. So, what would be an incongruent versus a congruent affect, a yeah. behavioral demonstration of emotion? You're struggling. I am struggling. Your I'm gears, a little distracted by. Uh, our talk, but I'm also just like... Oh, um, do you want to get back to that? No, no, no. I'm just distracted by it. It's just a little hangover. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm really happy, you know, but I've got a flat kind of... Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you're demonstrating it in a visual way for a podcast uh, of a uh, a look of... That doesn't look very yeah. happy. So maybe it's when my words or tone don't match... Um, the message I'm giving. Right. So I'm really sad and I'm laughing. Laughing, yeah. I'm really happy and you seem yeah, blah. Flat or blah or depressed right. or something. Good. Yeah. So that's one thing that you would look for at an MSC is like, are they congruent? Is their affect congruent with... And another thing is congruent with the situation. So yeah. they just went through a car accident. Right. And they're they're real happy and laughing. Right. So that could be like, well, that could be indication of concussion, right? Right. I I saw this uh, video of a case when I was uh, doing some training, some couple therapy training, where the it was a straight couple. The wife was expressing some real pain or something, and the husband was laughing, right? And he loved his wife, and we were looking at that, and I remember being feeling really disturbed by the laughing. And since then, what I've noticed about people is that when they are anxious, they laugh. Some people. smile. smile. Not everybody, but some people. Yeah. And I think this guy was just, like, freaking out. But in the it's pretty jarring, you know, like, to see, to see him laughing when his wife is expressing such deep pain. Right. Um, uh, uh, I, I think it's a way of talking about congruence. Yeah. Yeah. When I first saw that kind of stuff, uh-huh. I would be like, stop it in my yeah, head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, 
in my head, but maybe even verbally. Like, so I see you laughing. Right. I've come to see it as a really ingrained neurological pathway yeah. that was probably developed when they were three years old and reinforced throughout their lives yeah. as a very necessary coping skill. Right. And that they don't really have any control over it. No. It, it, this was particularly pointing it to me in movie theaters. You'd, you'd go to see a, a, a movie and it's very serious and there is someone being raped or there's someone in, you know, really being mm. raped yeah. or someone gets murdered or something. Right. And then uh, now the cat is up and the cat wants to join us. Oh. Um, uh, she thinks it's, um, she thinks that it's lunchtime, but it's far before that time. Uh, and at the mood in the movie theater is serious uh-huh. and, upset and empathetic to the character on screen. And then one dude in the back is laughing. Yeah. Have you ever had that before? Uh, I haven't, I don't think I've experienced it directly, but I get the idea of it. Yeah. I've experienced it a number of times. Wow. Where there'll be, it, 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 you'll hear this guy laugh two or three times at the most weirdest moments in a movie. And I used to think, what is wrong with that person? That person needs a good slap in the face. But when you're mistreated, yeah. so one of the things, one pathway to this uh, behavior is you are being sexually abused mm-hmm. and you are terrified and feeling violated and feeling trapped. And you learn over time that one of the things that actually gets the event to be over faster is to just be happy to be behaviorally happy mm-hmm. and maybe even laugh. Mm-hmm. It might also help you to cope with the moment because laughing is at least something to do yeah. other than to just focus on your pain oh, yeah. and fear. It's a distraction. You're like, oh, this is funny. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes this knee-jerk reaction just, that you can't really stop. Like a, like a conditioned response, really. Yeah. 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 So... And I found that women are more prone to this, oh, really? in my experience. Uh-huh. I, I don't have any research on that, yeah, but women are more prone to it, in my estimation, because they are socialized and expected to be very cordial. Oh, right. And oh. so when they're upset at age five or 10, they learn that if they don't at least put a laugh uh, capper on something that people will be upset with them. You know, like, um, actually I, I will say that, uh, in my family, my, my older, both my older siblings do this. Oh, really? Yeah. My, my brother and my sister do it more than I do. I've noticed where, when, and sometimes it's lovely. Like we'll be in a restaurant and the waiter will come over and my brother will say something like, oh, I didn't see you there. And then he'll laugh like really hysterically, you know, oh, I didn't see you there. Ha 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 you know, and I'm not that way because I was more like the lost middle child, mm-hmm. invisible child. So yeah. it wasn't really imperative on me to be that pleasing to other people. Right, right. And so, and my sister is that way too. They'll both... And they'll both, and it's really great because to the waiter, they're like, "Oh, this is a pleasant, jovial guy. He's laughing. Right. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not on edge. Right, right. It, it, it 
has a soothing effect or a calming effect or a uh, invitational kind of effect. Very much so. Yeah. And and so and women are more likely to be elected to those kinds of roles, oh, right? Right. To smooth things over and and you can really it's really hard to go wrong by laughing too much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know. Oh, you. <laughs> yeah. Like it it really especially if it seems genuine, it it really puts people at ease. Right. And so I don't know. Maybe I should be more like that. Oh, well, I don't know. Be more. Uh, but so taken to a pathological level, it could be very incongruent. Like, I was raped. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. All right. Different types of affect. Do you know the different, do you know the different words that you remember I, learning? I know flat. Okay, flat. I know. That, that's, that's in the ranged, that's in the range uh, dimension. Oh, okay. Not the type dimension. No, yeah. I don't know the types. Yeah. Well, once you hear them, it'll, it'll take you back. Okay. So you got euthymic. Oh, sure. You remember euthymic? Sure. Do you know what that means? Yeah, it means euphoric is like high. Euthymic is like on the pleasant side of but not high. Right. On the, uh, on the positive side. It generally means normal mood. Normal mood. But also on the positive side, right? right? You're, you're just sort of normal. Right. And everything seems to be within normal limits. So if someone seems normal affect, then they're euthymic. Right. Um, now, this doesn't mean they don't have emotion. It just means that their emotional expressions are appropriate to the situation, um, not excessive. Right. But so here we start to get into what I would like to say is like, well, how do you how do you measure excessive? Sure. It's this is our professions or pockets of our profession trying to justify their assessment, saying like, well, if I put this term to it, this person was euthymic with incongruent affect, it sounds so scientific. Oh, yeah, it does. Like, I, I administered the test, and it is incongruent. Yeah, like, highfalutin. You have HIV, you know? Yeah. Uh, I have found cancer. Yeah. You have dysphoric affect. Yeah, right. Well, that's just your goddamn opinion. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, it's not a scientific thing. It sounds scientific, though. Um, dysphoric. Dysphoric, right. Is unease or dissatisfaction. You can be depressed or irritable or angry. So it's really a catch-all for any bad emotion, yeah. essentially. Fairly intense bad emotion, negative right. emotion, yeah. And then you have euphoric, as you said, which yeah. is overly happy. Right. Like, woo! Yeah. yeah. Party! And this indicates things like, what What would it indicate, potentially? High or drunk. Yeah. Uh, could be mania. Right, mania. Yeah. Anxious is also another type of affect. Mm. So fidgety, sweating, preoccupied. Dysthymic. Uh, and... Uh, uh, dysthymic, I think, is is part of dysphoric. Dysphoric, okay, got it. Uh, but you could include that in your own system if you wanted to, Bob. Well, if you I, want to criticize yeah. my system. I mean, well, sure. Uh, if I'm insufficient for you. So. <laughs> Put your hand out and let me slap it down a little. <laughs> <laughs> I deserved it back then. Oh, easy. Um, another time that I remember you slapping my hand while we're on the topic <laughs> is I said something like, well... Because I was trying to... So I think this is the time we're in the taxi. This is getting a little personal. Oh. Thank God this is a patron-only episode. <laughs> um, there was a time when I was trying to convince you of something uh-huh. in your personal life. I was I was trying to give you advice, yeah. essentially. And I didn't read the room well enough oh. to know that you weren't really into me giving you advice. And I said, well, you know, when we... 
uh, are feeling this way, then, you know, we probably should do this. And you, and you were like, by we, you mean me, right? <laughs> <laughs> I might have been having a little bit of sensitivity that day. I mean, it was true. <laughs> I, I was meaning you. Yeah, I was basically accusing you, and I was trying to mask it. In yeah, this. being soft. Well, you were attempting to be soft so that I would listen, or which was a really bad attempt. You wanted to do me some good. I get it, but I could have actually been nicer and not tried to use a uh, shortcut to yeah. tricking you to un- to bu- to like listening to to my spouting. Yeah. Um, do you remember any? Do you remember I don't that remember event? It, no. Yeah. No, I, I do. I do remember. you remember what we were talking about that day? Um, we don't have to get no, into it, but uh, I don't. Yeah. I suspect it had something to do with somebody you were dating. Oh, no doubt. No or doubt. Something. I don't know. Yeah, no, it would have been most likely. Yeah. Something or one like of our friend dramas, maybe. Oh, it could have been a friend drama. We had a few of those along the way. Yeah. 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 Thank God this is a patron only episode. Probably wasn't a night of burning the pizza. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Bob and I would get home uh, at three in the morning and. <laughs> We would put a a pizza in the oven because we wanted to have some food. Yeah, right. And sometimes we would, and it would take a while. It take like half hour, half four, hour. forty yeah. minutes for yeah. it to cook, and because it's frozen. And right. then uh, sometimes we would fall asleep. Yeah, uh, I would be in bed, but I would be on the couch. Sure. And the next morning we'd wake up, and the the pizza would be this charcoal. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't have burned. It would have been desiccated (laughs) and we would be like oh boy um i guess we forgot you forgot the pizza (laughs) (laughs) we were in our 20s it was plain cheese uh red red baron plain cheese pizza with tabasco sauce on it we would actually apply tabasco yeah Yeah, it was good that's funny you have a you have a for some things you have a trap of a brain that remembers things because i don't remember well maybe we feel you know i don't remember that at all (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, range of affect so you you said uh flat Flat. another word for that is flattened or blunted yeah this is a severe restriction in the display or intensity of emotions yeah so what sort of pathology might this indicate uh schizophrenia yeah a psychotic disorder it's it's a it's a negative symptom of um Psychosis. Psychosis, yeah. Uh, what and else? And the tragic one. Yeah. Uh, what else? Depression, probably. Um, yeah. I don't know. Anything else? Dissociation. Oh, right. Of course. Of course. PTSD. Yeah. Autism spectrum. Oh, right. Of course. Right. Uh, medication like antipsychotic meds. Yeah. Withdrawal from benzos or other kinds of things. Right. Brain damage. There can oh, be. There's a of lot things. of roads to flat, flat affect. Yeah. Or they they just don't want to be in therapy with you. And they're just trying to resist yeah. being authentic. Guard, guard, protective kind of. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they're sometimes they're monotone. Right. Uh, behaviorally, they don't really move their face or their body very much. Mm-hmm. Other range of affect words that you remember. So one is those. The normal is full. So full? When, so oh, okay. when you say full. Range of affect. Oh, okay. Full range. Sure, sure. You're saying normal. Another word they sometimes use is broad, which I find to be weird. It's like, why don't you just say normal? I don't yeah. Know. 
Um, another is restricted, which or constricted, which seems like flat, but it uh, the, this one is different from flat in that it is perceived by the clinician as the client or patient willfully trying to resist showing emotion. Oh, holding back tears. Yeah, or yeah. just trying to not uh, be present in the room or something. Right. Uh, so blunted is generally more severe also. Yeah, right. And um, involuntary, as we say. Labile, remember that word? Oh, that's a word. So labile is one of those words that I've only heard in reference to the MSE. It's a terrible word. Yeah. yeah. It sounds sexual. Well, it sounds like labia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what it means? It just means up and down. Yeah. Emotional instability, yeah. dramatic mood swings. Sometimes people will have labels like exaggerated. This is like histrionic, borderline narcissistic people. Oh, man. Now it's getting subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Or heightened. Uh, there are other descriptors, but these are the ones that I decided to include. Now, all of this needs to be, we've alluded to this already. All of this needs to be understood within the understanding that a observer is not an objective observer. Nope. Now, as an experienced observer, if you really do a lot of these MSCs, particularly if you're an ER right. social worker, yeah. you're going to get pretty good at, at scanning someone's presentation for 30 seconds and being like, oh, they present like a psychotic person. Right. Let me do some more evaluation to find out if that's the case. Yeah. Ooh, this person's presenting like someone who had a stroke. Right. Let's look at some other angles of assessment to triangulate and really try to figure this out. So, and that's the point about the MSE. And that's one thing I did learn in my society in the assessment courses I took was that no one measure should be relied on. Uh, yeah. That you can't just give a MMPI and say, you have, you know, this or that. It's one tool that you administer and you have to use other tools like just interviewing somebody, right? just asking questions that pertain to the assessment road that you're going down or asking collaterals, asking family members or teachers or the police officer that dra drag them and what, tell me more about their behavior, looking at their medical history, maybe trying to get medical records. You know, there's a lot of different things that come into play when we're trying to, uh, providing evaluation. Now, in Bob, you're in my profession, we're not working against our clients because they oh. often are asking us for help. Yeah. And they're willingly uh, telling us their experience. So we don't have to triangulate anything. You know, triangulate is like in the movies when it's a spy movie or something yeah. and you're trying to triangulate the cell phone or triangulate the radio signal. Right. You got to get two different readings to triangulate. And so we don't need to do that because presumably our clients are telling us the truth. And if they're not, when they're ready, they will tell us and then we'll get a better picture. Oh, yeah. But there's no imperative that we figure out the truth in the first few sessions. It's like, well, this is what they're telling me. I'm, I'm detecting some resistance. I'm detecting some quote unquote deception. But that just means they're not ready to trust me yet and... Goal number one is helping them to trust me, building that relationship, and then whatever I'm getting a vibe here, they'll eventually tell me. So having said that, if someone comes into our office and is giving off that psychotic vibe or a hidden suicide vibe, then we absolutely will, will oh. go down those roads well, yeah. of assessing that. 
or realizing this is bigger than what our practice is really set up for and we'll refer or whatever, but we so rarely run into that. Yeah, that's rare. Yeah. So not only are we not objective observers, but we're also cultural observers. And what is oh. excessive emotional uh, expression? It's in the beholder. Right. Yeah. It's, and it's in the culture. Yeah. There are certain cultures like, for example, Japanese culture and Northwestern European Scandinavian culture, which is what I'm, I'm a mixture of, right. are two of the most anti-emotion-showing cultures on the planet. Reserved. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've been called before. Private? Did you say these folks are private? Private, reserved, reserved. non-emotional, yeah. well, wow. robots. That yeah, that's our those are derogatory terms. Derogatory, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause because everybody feels everything. Totally. Yeah. And just because they don't seem like Yeah. Right. And different cultures, you will learn different ways to communicate right. feelings. Right. Like one of the things that pops into my head is when we see uh, some cultures from around the world exhibiting acute grief, we'll be screaming yeah. ah, and yeah. like beating their head yeah. and falling Feeding. on the ground. Right. And this could be like a month after the loss. Yeah. When when some when us reserved, you know, compared to that Americans look at that, we think that person is just histrionic. What's wrong with that right, person? Right. They're hysterical. Yeah. They're drumming up this this expression to like what put on a show? Are they trying to get attention? You have all yeah. these ascriptions of meaning or whatever. That's just they are feeling something, and that's how their culture taught them to feel that. Yeah. We have been taught a different way right. of expressing grief, which is essentially don't express it. So when they look at us, they think, "What is wrong with you people? Yeah. Don't you care about loss?" And we'll be like, "Well, yeah, I care." Well, why aren't you? expressing that you care because us Americans have been taught that any expression of emotion has to be within a, especially when it comes to grief. Because yeah. I've done a lot of, because I'm writing a book on this, I've done a lot of thinking yeah. on this, just getting on grief in particular, is that, and it pertains to the MSC and assessment, is that the only, so so I've done a lot of cultural research looking at articles and stuff, and like the only way, the there, the there's almost an impossible range of what's acceptable. And this become this becomes in a it in a sharp focus when there's a legal case. Mm-hmm. Like the a dingo stole my baby, uh dingo, right? Ate. Ate my baby? Yeah. The do you know the story behind that? Was it a lie? No. No, it was true. I mean it was so a thought so in Australia, uh all evidence is pointing toward a dingo which is basically like a like a coyote or like a, a wild dog a wolfy kind of thing yeah. stole one this family's baby while they were camping and ate it Ugh. or killed it or something and the mother played by Meryl Streep in a famous movie with Sam the guy from Jurassic Park Sam Neil Sam Neil like a trap your brain pop culture and you're always good when we do trivia, by the way. <laughs> um, so the the baby, but when the mother, so it became this very famous case in Australia, and then it became famous around the world for some weird reason. And one of the things that the media focused on was there would be these press conferences, and this is like the 70s, and they'd ask the mom about 
what happened, and I'm, this is a very long story that I'm condensing, but the mom would talk in these very robotic ways about oh, it uh-huh. because it was three months later, right? And she's cried in at home. Yeah. She's working, you know, but in these interviews, she would be like, "Yeah, so a dingo ate my baby," and. I'm very worried about the baby. And people watching these clips thought she's not she's not crying enough. Right. She's not she she's this, incongruent. Right. This what looks is, this looks suspicious. Right, right. Did she kill the baby? And then right. they then the the media started really hounding this. Similar mm-hmm. this is similar to the Amanda Knox case, you know, that case in yeah, Italy. Sure. When the media starts getting involved, then the police and investigators start kind of being influenced by that. Right. And then they start going after her. And I think she even maybe served time. Oh. I'm not sure. Wow. Um, so, so the whole thing here is that when a particular culture looks at someone going through something difficult, we have a very uh, narrow view of what should be expressed. There are other examples, other legal examples that I actually have written about where if someone gives too much emotion – then they are perceived as being fake, fake, and therefore they must have done it right. when they didn't do it. Right. Another example I, t- I write about is Buzz Aldrin, I believe, if I remember right. His wife dies, I think, oh. and a y- year later or something, he's dating someone else. Oh. And in the tabloids, they're saying that it's disgraceful that so soon after— right. You know, his his dead wife is still warm in the grave, warm and grave. he's out there. Yeah. And again, people looking at him thinking, he's not grieving correctly. Right. Whereas you look at another person, there's other articles of, of someone who is, say, their wife died or their mother died, and they're still really depressed about it, and they'll look at them, and they'll be like, get over it. Get over it already. Too long. Yeah. So grief is either too long, too short. Not enough emotion, too much emotion. Right. There's no, there's no range that's actually helpful. So, us as cultural people, sure, we're going to look at a patient, a client, and say to them, based on we're gonna we're gonna write in their file, this person has exaggerated affect. Right. Compared to what? Right. In what cultural pocket? Who gets to say? Yeah. Right now. So if you consider that, then that helps to narrow in. Because the point is you're trying to get... So, for example, someone who comes from a culture that is much more expressive emotionally than yours, and they're very expressive, and you're thinking, ooh, this this seems excessive. Am I looking at a manic person? So then you think, but, you know, there are other cultures that express emotions differently than mine. And I come from a culture that really values not expressing that much emotion. So I could be influenced there. Let me look at some other things. Let me consider that as a maybe. Yeah. And but maybe I'm biased. Let me look at some other angles. Yeah. That's that's great. Absolutely. Totally responsible. And you don't have to throw out the MSC because some people are like, ah, it's all cultural relativism. Get rid of the MSC. Sure. It's like, well, no, you can as long as you have a good cultural backbone, then you can use the MSC. It's not like it's worthless. Sure. You know? It's just if you consider culture, it's it's fine. Um, I run into a similar thing with theory. I'll teach Bowenian theory, for example, which mm-hmm. was developed like in the 50s by oh. a white guy. Oh, right. And there's almost no cultural discussion within the theory. 
which most theories don't. Cognitive theory. Most don't. Behavioral theory. No. Freudian theory. They're just based on observation of clients or patients. Right. Yeah. It was before our understanding in our field of social yeah. context and power and privilege and right. and the impact that it could have on people's lives. Right. And because most of the people who developed these theories were privileged, aside from Jewish people in Europe, which you'd think they would have written more about, and some of them did. Anyway, the point is, is that I'll teach the theory to people and they will say, well, you know, what about cultural relativism and this sort of thing? And I'll be like, yeah. So contemporary Bowenian people will consider cultural relativism and society and privilege, and they'll integrate that into Bowenian theory, and it can be done. But I find some people will be like, well, if it doesn't, if it's not yeah. core to the theory, then I reject it completely. Sure. And it's like, you, we don't have to do that. We can retain it and integrate it yeah. with our current understanding and wisdom around this sort of thing and have it be just as useful. Sure. More powerful in a lot of ways. Extremes just tend to miss the mark. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just find a lot of, so this is another novice, and I talked about this in my episode in which I talked about 15 things that hacky therapists will do. Oh, all right. And one of the things is to reject theory based on extremely limited information. People will be like, <laughs> CBT is stupid, you know. Yeah, right, right, right. Or DBT is stupid. Or oh, psychoanalysis sure. is stupid. Right. Or, or Gestalt and Fritz Perls is stupid. Right. And I'm just like, man, is that a hacky thing to say? Non-evidence-based therapies are stupid. That's the current <laughs> one, I think. Yeah. Because all I hear is, you don't understand what you're talking about. And if you did, I, it's, it, there's not a problem with saying it doesn't fit with me. Sure, that's one or thing. Or I find use in focusing on other areas. Right. But there is something drastically wrongheaded and uneducated to say that a complete theory that has been adopted by thousands of people and researched by thousands of people and helped thousands of people right. is 100% useless. Yeah, that's hubris. Yeah, right. That's a good word for it. I always get a little chuckle in my mind when I hear that word. It just sounds funny. Yeah. Hubris. It's like a fun word. Hubris. Yeah. Hubris. There's not, there's not a lot of w words like that. Hubris. It's Yiddish, right? Is it? It's Yiddish. Oh. Yeah. How would you know that? I like words. Yeah, like a steel trap. <laughs> so last thing we'll talk about is mood. mood. I'll just briefly talk about it. It's different from affect because it's based on client report. Oh, right. You can't, you can't behaviorally observe someone every day. So you have to depend on the client to tell you their general mood. Right. And we often use the client's words here. So right. the affect is an observation thing. It's supposed to be quote-unquote objective, and we observe it. We don't ask clients to tell us their affect. We observe it. Yeah. But with mood, we actually ask them, and we'll quote them. Yeah. Say, like, they, I asked them about their mood, and they said they're, they seem generally happy recently, or they seem generally depressed, or they seem generally anxious recently. Right. So, uh, yeah, I could go into more things, but... So I want to get back to um, lack of self stuff. Did, is there anything more you wanted to talk about with that? No, no. You just. But had... if there was, I, I you know I can't flip the light switch on anyway. So how the hell do I know? <laughs> <laughs> do you see as you grow and go to therapy and learn mm. and have a secure relationship with people such as your wife that mm. the dimmer switch is 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 turning on a little bit? Yeah. 
when you think about your purpose in life, I'm just curious, do you feel like you have one? Like when your bedroom is lit, like a direction, a, a reason? That's a really great question. That's a, just one of those really fabulous fundamental questions. Uh, frankly, no, most of the time not. Like you think, I, I don't have an answer to that or... I don't have I don't know how to access an answer to yeah, that. Yeah, it's more like that. It's more like I don't often think to pay attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think actually makes it difficult for Colleen because, you know, mm, she wants to please you, I'm guessing. Yeah, right. It's hard for her to know if she's hitting the mark with me because, you know, she can't see in the dark any better than I can. Right. She doesn't know like for example, if you're I know sometimes you and your wife will talk about career moves and retiring and right. money, money and, and you know, future. You know, sh- should we invest or should we get a new house or should we sell, you sell know, like or, different things. And, yeah. and if you don't have a purpose and Colleen is looking to you trying to think, well, in the next two or three decades of our life, right? how am I going to balance what I want in life with my husband's? Right. And I don't, but I don't really know what his grand scheme is, and, and he's more trying to be utilitarian to me, right? Trying to like please me, right? I don't have anything to grab onto. I want to know, so it frustrates her. Oh, no doubt. That's, what, got, you're, that's it, what you're saying. It does frustrate her, you know. But for a person like me, when you think your function is to be of service and use, it's pretty weird when somebody asks you what you want. Right. Like it's like. Uh, what are you talking about? Yeah, you know, like I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, right? It took me a long time to realize that that was actually a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, that makes me sad, Bob. I wish more people ask you that question, and I wish that you'd think about it more because well, you deserve to pay attention to that. Because it's in, it, you know, maybe that's in a drawer somewhere that you got to really, you can't just flip on the lights. You got to start rummaging around. Yeah, that it's a, it requires effort. Yeah, and I actually think about it most days, and um, I notice resistance, I notice reluctance, I notice there's times when I know what I want, and I just will not say it. So you have a thing that you yeah. want, that emerges, I yeah. want this, but yeah. you're like afraid to say it? Yeah. Because you're worried that it won't be heard, or... Rock the boat, piss people off, annoy... Uh, what if I can't maintain the stamina that's necessary to hang on to what I want? Wow. Yeah, uh, what if I capitulate? What if I um, get so attached to what I want that I lose flexibility and focus? What if I become aggressive, hmm. you know, and insistent and pushy and a bitch? And, you know, these are things that I'm afraid of. Yeah. So uh, often the path of least resistance is to just either not pay attention or not say. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's scary, actually, to hold on to uh, my position in... Uh, relationships. Because according to history, yeah. when you do, sometimes it leads to disaster. Yeah, like when you tell me, you know, there's this time in the taxi and you said this thing and you slapped my hand down, I actually get scared. It's like, fuck, man, am I like screwing up my friendship with you? Because my no. friendship with you is very valuable. Yeah. And it also feels fragile. And you can, tr- I hope, trust me, that I can contextualize and I wasn't even 
hurt in the moment. Yeah. I mean, maybe mildly, mm. but I was the narrative very quickly was well, he was right, <laughs> uh, and so trust that that there's no threat there. You Thanks. know the the thing that um, I have learned over time is that if you're going to have good relationships, if you're going to have particularly well. I think most of us understand this with romantic relationships, but I think people don't have this narrative when it comes to friendships. But it applies to friendships just as much in that there are going to be some rough edges at times. Yeah. There are going to be, you know, with with Umberto on this podcast, him and I will fight sometimes on this podcast. Wow. We'll, and we'll get heated and we'll insult each other. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, he'll say, he'll he'll roll his eyes at me and, oh, and okay. say things like, Oh, come on, you know, in a very hostile way. Yeah. And I'll say things like, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> you know, I, literally, I've said things like that. And so it's, um, it's something that is not great. But if you didn't have things like that, then in all likelihood, you're, you're just kind of like advanced acquaintances. And so if you really want to be friends with someone, you're really going to be vulnerable and be yourself, yeah. then there are going to be moments where things are going to get a little rough. And there might even be just flat out mistakes made. Yeah. Uh, you know, the things, the examples I gave to you are not mistakes. They're just like, um, you could say, if, if, if a third person were to be as generous to both of us as possible, they would say that Kirk was trying to do something and did a mistake and you, uh, you know, appropriately pointed it out to benefit both of us. You, mm -hmm. you were doing it so that I would stop doing it and you were pointing it out so that, uh, so that I would learn and also so that you could say, stop doing this, this is hurting my feelings or something. Yeah. Or this is bothering other people that I care about or something. Mm -hmm. And... And that so that's even like pretty minor. I mean, imagine if there's actual animosity or something, and and real mistakes being made, which we all accept. I think in romantic relationships, but in friendships, of course, they're going to happen. Yeah. What What's the distinction between friends and and romantic people, other than you get to roll around with them naked? You know, uh, maybe some friends do, but um, <laughs> but the. Uh, the emotional content and the the, the security and the bumping up against people's uh, personality issues are the same. And so anyway. Yeah, they're the same. Anyway, so uh, I hope I don't that you – I don't – it makes me think about like maybe I should just ask you occasionally like what your purpose in life is or <laughs> just, just an open-ended question. <laughs> Because I, I really want you to to uh, have that because mm, it really does feel good. And I know that – so are there times when you have that and it feels good and it isn't a threat to other people? Well, yeah. Like I, I think I chose well when, in terms of work. Like okay. I, I chose I, – uh, that, that's that guy, David uh, – David, uh, the guy who does the thing, self of therapist, talks David somebody – you know what I'm talking about? No. He he's a psychologist. He does these talks and I can't remember his last name. Um but he said at a training I was at a while back, I learned all my clinical skills when I was six at the knee of my mother. Right? And I think 
for me, that's largely true too. I learned a lot about a lot of the things that I learned to get through my youth um, um, suit me in in counseling, yeah. right. and that's cool. And I so in um, I think I've chosen well. Like my temperament is suited for this kind of work, by mostly. Um, what was the question? Oh, do, do I you, have a sense of purpose? Yeah, like so that that I value kindness and compassion. Those are like two of my core values, and my choice in work. Um, I get to actually practice those every day. Yeah, that reminds me of you. I correct me if I'm wrong. I've always had that sense of purpose in that way. Yeah, and from the very beginning yeah, that yeah. it was you very much felt at ease and in the existential purpose zone and good at it well that and, comes and goes but yeah and living your life's purpose as you yeah. as you care for other people right. help other people and uh so so that's great that, yeah. you, that you have that yeah when i'm 98 and a half and you know reviewing my life I will not look back on that part and with any kind of regret. Uh, I might look back and think, well, what else might you have done that, you know, you didn't think of? Yeah. Yeah. So professional snowboarding probably, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, do you think about anything like that? Do you ever answer that question? So, I mean, I, I, I think about that all the time. What would you do? Well, I, I, I feel like I think about it so often that question. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I'm a therapist is because I asked that question when I was stuck in traffic when I was 23 or 24. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I said, well, one day, you know, I was working as a business guy in Bellevue. Right. And wearing a suit, office, just doing market research stuff. And I saw my life before me. And I wow. said, okay, well, I'll probably move up the ranks and start doing more important things. Maybe I'll own my own marketing firm or something. I don't know. And, or I'll work for Microsoft because Microsoft was just kind of getting going. Microsoft was, was one of my contracts that we would do marketing. We did marketing for Windows 95. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we helped with the marketing rollout. It's just so funny to think about how quaint things were back then. <laughs> I, I, was, I was in charge of the understanding of how the marketing was going as Bill Gates was doing these, this tour to different uh, I think companies if, or he was just giving the, it was the beginning of that whole thing where there'd be this rollout rollout. Yeah. And this excitement. And I remember just thinking like, who cares about a goddamn operating system? Yeah. But some people really did. Yeah. Anyway, I saw my whole life before me and I thought, yeah, it's a good life. Earn money. Yeah. I kind of like what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've fallen into something that I can, I can do and I feel competent at. Yeah. But I saw myself on my deathbed at you know, some elder age looking back on my life, and I said, like, well, what would I, what would I want to see different, if anything? Great question. And I said, well, although I'm, I wouldn't regret being in marketing, I, I would regret having spent a third of my life on something that essentially is just pushing papers and earning money mm -hmm. and might not actually contribute to society at all. Hmm. And then I thought, well, how, what kind of job, because you're 24, your life is ahead of you. You could really just do anything yeah. you could. And so I'm thinking, well, what could I do that would be meaningful to me? 
And I thought, well, I always thought about becoming a teacher, maybe, but that sounds horrible because I'd have to give public speeches. Oh, right. Oh, my God. You're a teacher now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no way I'm going to do that. I can't speak in, <laughs> in front of crowds of people. Uh-huh. It's too... No, that's just not going to happen. Uh, now you teach and you do a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Irony. I, I have a history of going towards things that I absolutely hate. Well, uh, and this is that's one of them. Like just And like two minutes before going on stage, I'll be like, what? Oh, right. Did I do? That's here? right. You like. Why am I doing this? this been is, in bands forever. Yeah. yeah. What is wrong with me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why? Yeah. And then being a therapist. So, so I thought about so you what thought teaching and then you thought, so, well, so I thought, well, what's the element about being a teacher that would really appeal to me? And, and the thing that really appealed to me was working one-on-one with a student. Oh, nice. I thought like, wouldn't it be great to actually just sit down with a student and really help them really, you know, get into their situation and really figure out their situation and yeah. help them. Move them down. And I thought, well, what other profession does that? And I said, well, a, a counselor, a therapist does. Yeah. And I'd been in therapy before and I thought, well, that's interesting. It had never occurred to me. And then by the time I think I got home, sitting on traffic on 520 Bridge, you know, coming from Bellevue back to, where would I have lived then? I would have lived somewhere Lake, right? Um Did I? Yeah, well, you're probably right, Green Lake. And I th- had decided that I was going to become a therapist, and I started asking around about, and this is before the internet, right? So I had to just ask people, where do you get trained to become a therapist? And somehow, Anti- someone said Antioch. Yeah. Somebody told me about Antioch. Yeah. And um, before, I think that was er, like February of 95. We started in October. Yeah. And, I, and the deadline was March or something. Or, oh, wow. Or, and, and so in that amount of time, I managed to get going. And uh, yeah, and then so seven you months moved. later, I was being trained to be a, a therapist, which is just so funny to think because it's like it had never occurred to me. And like, what if I, what if it was just a whim and I was making a mistake? What if you weren't stuck in traffic that day? <laughs> yeah. So I can relate to that yeah. for sure in sure. terms of your, um, your, your purpose. But I always, I feel like early in life, when we were first getting going in our careers, I felt like you had much more of a sense of that purpose than I did. I think mm-hmm. it took me a while to, to really feel that. Cause I remember when I started becoming a therapist, I was like, well, hopefully I can do this for 10 years and that'll justify the amount of energy I put into becoming this profession. But I'm yeah. sure I'll get bored of it at some point and, and do something else. There's just no way I could, I could do one profession for that long. Yeah. It just seemed inconceivable to me. But I'm guessing for you, you were like, oh, I'm probably going to be a therapist the rest of my life. Yeah, I mean, I've had thoughts about doing something else. Not that I had an idea of what it was, but I have had thoughts of doing something else in, you know, 30 years. It's a long time. Professional snowboarding? Yeah, right. Yeah. Afraid of heights. Don't like the cold weather. It's really not the best choice for me. Well, it's interesting to think about the other categories of purpose that I have that maybe you don't tend to focus on or 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 are afraid of rummaging around in your drawer for. Mm-hmm. Cause certainly that's a big one is career. Mm-hmm. And it goes beyond that because it's not just like, Oh, this is my little tinkering career. It's like, this is me making a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. This is me having relationships with actual human beings and yeah. them affecting me. And yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 
That's it's it's different from other kinds of work. Right. Yeah. So, but other kinds of purposes, like um, I guess you know, expanding on that, like doing the podcast or whatever, supervising, writing a book, these kinds of things. Well, so you're an author. You you you've dipped into writing books and yeah. pop up books, if you will. <laughs> and so does does that come from a place of purpose for you? Well, I I think I value creativity, and I think I get something out of making. And and does that oh yeah that's... embody like a a solid purpose for you and you're not afraid of of connecting with that purpose oh no I am afraid of it um um it's hard to imagine doing that for me like oh I might just do this thing and its purpose is just to satisfy me interesting right like what is this contributing what's it supposed to do and you know like. It isn't necessarily supposed to do anything. Right, because no one's no one needs you to publish yeah, your book, book that is basically done. Yeah. Well. Um and it would be in order to overcome the next barriers to actually put it out there, mm. you would have to have a real sense of purpose. It would really have to come from you. And you know, because it's possible that no one will buy it. That's possible. No one will read it, no one will care. Yeah. And so there has to be at least, I would say, 51% of the motivation has to come from just the a personal satisfaction yeah. and purpose in life of, well, I don't want to die having not done this. Yeah. And uh, th- so there's something scary about that to you? Yeah. What, what's the fear? Oh, um, it won't be any good. That's a pretty common fear for people that yeah. make stuff. But, what, but in terms of lack of self issues, like what... In terms of like, um, I don't know, like what the if, general sense of like, well, when I enact my purpose, bad things happen because other people don't like it or they don't like, or they punish me or something. I don't know. Oh yeah. My, my book actually, I have worried a lot about what people in my family would think of it if they ever read it. Oh really? Yeah. Like, um, you know, like all first novels, it's autobiographical to some degree. Yeah. And, um, uh, to the degree that it's autobiographical, my, uh, family might have a hard time with it. Yeah. They might. Um, interesting. Yeah, interesting that so it's so specifically related to that, that yeah. you expressing yourself is actually understandably threatening to the people who got in the way of you developing your sense of self in the first place. That's interesting. That is interesting. It's quite a quite a mountain of uh material there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. I mean, I, I I could see that now. Yeah. Cuz you know, I've bo- I've been bothering you to publish that oh, thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Very it never occurred to me to ask like what sort of existential uh, mm. self issues could be involved in because to me it just because to me like I said not only do I have more self but I have or my light is turned on mm. and I'm more accustomed and not afraid of rummaging around in my drawers nice but I also have a you know I'm on the narcissistic spe- spectrum which compels me to bother other people with with my with my bedroom 
come in my bedroom. Let me show you something. I've always been that way, <laughs> which is not a wonderful quality to have. When harnessed right, well, well it, it is it can be a, a good thing or can be not bothersome to other people. You can also make a good case for um, we out here get a benefit of being invited in, getting to look around. Yeah, and which is which is the positive end. Yeah, if if people are willing, well, uh, there's know. certainly a lot of people willing to rummage around in your bedroom with you, right? How many patrons? Yeah. And, but that is voluntary, you know, listen, yeah. I've certainly bothered a lot of people in my personal life, oh, okay. uh, subjecting them to things. I've gotten better as I've gotten older because mm. I've just matured and realized, oh, you know, just as an example, I have been writing music since I was in high school. Right. And when I think back at how many people I subjected to my early composition recording, <laughs> uh, I would just, I would just make them sit through like, like. 10 songs. Like, this is what we're going to listen to in my car for the next hour. We're going to listen to uh, gotcha. 10 of the songs that I've recorded on my stupid little boombox at home. And because I thought it was, it was, because I liked it. You liked and, it. And I thought, it, I didn't think it was amazing, but I thought it was worthy of people paying attention to. But having been on the other side of that, so the, the, the Bob's letting the dog in once again. Um, she's one of those creatures that likes to. Um, rummage around in the various edges of the fence, you know? They like access. Yeah. Into my room, out of my room, outside, inside. Uh, the cat now has been aroused and is making noise. Because, uh, again, it's, it's, it's almost lunchtime, and so anytime either animal sees each other, they think, wait, the animal, the other animal is moving. Right. Does that mean the the other animal is getting food? Yeah, that, that's what. Tra- it's like if the other animal isn't moving, then the other animal isn't getting fed. But if the other animal's moving, then that might be because they both get fed at the same time. Right, right. Movement equals food possibility. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, I would subject people to to my music, and being on the other side of that, having narcissistic people. Force me to listen to their, or you know, force their art on me when I'm when I'm only mildly interested in it. Mm. I I feel that other side of things, and I just cringe at how many people I subjected uh, to that. Right. So anyway, um, so my my hope my hope is is that you can have those that sense of that purpose that can. It's so satisfying. I mean, you know, like for you, when you meet your purpose in your profession, correct me if I'm wrong, it's satisfying. No, it is. It's very satisfying. It feels good. Yeah, absolutely. I did something worthwhile today. Yeah. I am worth the oxygen that I breathe today on this planet. Yeah. And uh, if I continue doing this, I will still be worth something. Yeah. Yeah. And I and it it just feels good. It does feel good. It feels terrific. Yeah. And that's it's nice. That's a regular event for me, you know. Since I mean, I certainly have days where I'm like, oh my god, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I suck at this. You know, everybody has those days, but um, uh, frequently have the experience of I, I I have a sense that I was helpful and useful, um, and that I learned something, or that I developed a new skill, or not developed a new skill, but uh, maybe um, honed a skill a little bit more. Um, that's very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. And the, um, just being in the zone, you know, yeah, the zone, like, right. like being a utility to other people yeah. is not being in the zone. 
it's a place of, as you say, survival, right. Right. survival and fear and, and just being a tool for other people, which, which we'll all have to be at times. Yeah, at times. Nothing if, wrong with that. Yeah. I don't, you know, there are staff meetings at work I don't want to go to. I'm not living my purpose, but I'll go. Because that's what's in front of you and you have to and, and whatever. I should and about. Yeah. And that's okay. I don't have to live my purpose all the time. Yeah. So I, I just, um, I would hope for you that you could have even more of those satisfactions in life. Like, Thanks. Um, regardless of whether or not it bothers other people. Well, right. That's, that's the rub for people like me. Yeah. 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 What's its impact? Yeah. With the assumption being that it's probably going to have a not so great impact. It's an assumption. It isn't necessarily based in fact, but it's just a, you know, reflexive. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, like your book, yeah. if anyone in your family reads it, reads it, they're probably smart enough to say like, well, wait a second. This kind of sounds yeah. like this and that. Yeah. And it might hurt their feelings. It might. And yeah. that's okay. I mean, it's not great that people are hurt. No, you don't seek it. But it's, for me, I'm not sure it is. Uh, on a visceral level, on an intellectual level, sure, of course. Couldn't it be just to get micro on this? Sure, matched with a caveat to your family around this is one slice of my expression, and let me balance this out with this. Or I'm just being real here. This is how I feel about things. Yeah, and. I feel this positive thing about you, but I also feel this negative thing about you. And you, this is not a mystery because you've talked with your family about these things, sure. right? Yeah. It's, it's not, not like it's a big news. mystery. No. And, and I just, and when people read this book, I hope they don't target you in their minds. I'm just trying to write a book, but I hope that you can cope with this because, or maybe you don't care. Do you, do you want them to feel the, the pain of the whole thing? Oh, no, no. I don't have a malicious intent about any of it. In fact, I don't think I could have wrote it if that was my goal. So couldn't that, ha- I mean, this is me pressuring you. No, no, it's, you're just, you're, you're suggesting something I could conceive. Is that, would that lead to you living your purpose or is it more complicated than that? I think I just get scared. I mean, everything you're saying, I, I agree with. Um, and there's a part of me that, you know, like um, resists uh, messages that are against programming that's a way to put it habit habit sure yeah yeah and and because there isn't a uh experiential habit of right you expressing self and having it go well yeah and being appreciated or safe Mm. because of other people's personality issues shall Mm. we say yeah it's like well that all sounds good, but let's be honest. Like, let's just because I because I think about things like I'm trying to relate, and I think that mm-hmm. one of the ways I can relate is there are people who I have been involved with personally and professionally who, and and my therapist would sometimes say stuff like this to me. They'd be like, "Well, why don't you just tell them how you feel?" Oh yeah, like just be your you know live yourself. Don't be afraid. Like they can't hurt you. Mm-hmm. And I would say or think. No fucking way. Like, you're right. I have the right to step forward and stand up for myself and say X, Y, and Z. Right. But I don't think you understand this person that I'm talking about. Yeah. Their reactivity is so strong and so distorted and so 
sure of themselves and so aggressive and yeah. so long term, so grudge were you know so grudging that well, this this could have effects on my life for ten years. I could be impacted negatively by right. this and and. That's just the stress I'd rather avoid. And if that means like not expressing myself and not being assertive, then I guess that's the price I pay. But, yeah. I don't, but see, the, the difference there, I think, f- for me in terms of how I feel about rummaging in my drawers is like that actually fits with my purpose in life. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, my purpose in life it has to do with asserting myself, but it also has to do with like self-preservation. Oh, and, sure. and I'm okay with that. Right. Uh, is that a factor? It's not fear-based. That's um, more intentional. Not that it isn't scary, but... Pragmatic. It, it's pragmatic, right. Whereas um, I think uh, my habits are fear-based and they have nothing to do with pragmatism. Right. Yeah. And the weight of you expressing yourself and deserving to get your book out there doesn't have a weight on the scale no like there's two there there's always going to be that weight of like well what if i bother these people right and there's fallout from that i don't i don't want that that has a certain weight to it you know to write a novel if you want to publish it if you want to publish it with a publisher not like amazon but like a publishing agency you have to submit a sample a manuscript but you also have to write a query letter and the query letter is supposed to describe why you think this book is worthy of publishing i've thought about that Many, many times I'm thinking, what the hell would I say to somebody? Why you should read this book? I don't know if you should read this book. It's entertaining. Yeah, right. Is that is that a legitimate purpose? I think so. You know? like, like Most fiction, or a lot of fiction, has that element, right? Well, yeah, it almost exclusively has that element. Well, depending on what you read. I mean, some literary stuff maybe, but uh, stuff I read is just for fun. Right. I mean, it's why do you watch Game of Thrones? Right, yeah. it's for fun. At the very least, it's entertaining. Yeah, yeah. it's not for a lesson in history. <laughs> it could be, uh, in addition. In addition, know, but yeah. it's not its main. You right. Know. So, so was that George R. R. Martin? That's the guy, right? Yeah. He he writes a query letter to a publisher, and he says, "Well, we should do this book because you know it'll be entertaining." That never feels like. It's sufficient because a it seems like a hubristic thing to hubristic thing to say really? this will be entertaining. Um, I don't know if it, you know, how do I know? Right. Um, and to assert such a thing seems like you know like an ego. I wish I could give you just like thirty percent of my narcissism. <laughs> you could offload some. I could take some on. We'd make the perfect amalgam. Because I have the same thoughts about anything I've created, but I also very quickly say, well, fuck it. If people don't like it, I don't care. I want to do it anyway. I want to do it anyways, yeah. 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 I mean, there there are plenty of things that I do in life that I've learned are not particularly entertaining or not super compelling. Mm -hmm. You know, being in a music band is like a classic example of that. Like uh, most people who come to uh, my shows are friends and family who are doing it out of politeness. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're dying to watch me perform and my band perform, you know what I mean? And uh, we don't have massive fans or anything. We never did. Uh, so I learned long ago that I'm pretty much doing this because I want to do it. And honestly, like, I don't even care about playing live. I just like, I just like having practices with my band. It's just yeah. a fun thing to create. To create music. In a practice space. And yeah make loud music it's just it's very satisfying uh particularly rock music there's something about drums and bass and guitar mm-hmm. and singing and and just that electric loud feel mm-hmm. you know and 
so I get that. Um, and that uh, is, I think, part of narcissism of just like I like to create and observe me creating. Do you know? Like mm-hmm. I like – I like not only to create, but I like to observe that I created something. Oh, yeah. Which I think is inherent in any, any creative yeah. endeavor. Like if you don't have at least some interest in, in the creation that you're making or in the process of you creating, it's hard to get through day-to-day it is. things. When you're writing a book, I'm, sh- I'm guessing you were looking at yourself writing the book going, that's interesting that there's this guy writing this book that I actually think is actually kind of good. It wasn't me. What? Uh, writing a novel is more like taking dictation. Interesting. Yeah. What do you tell us more about that? Um, well, um, uh, like when you read a book, when you read a novel for the first time, you're, you're entering into this world that you've never been to before. And you know, if it's good writing, it's compelling and it's interesting or whatever, but you're like, this is a whole new experience when you're writing a book. It's like exactly like that. You're reading it for the first time but it doesn't feel like you're right. It has not felt like I'm writing it. It's felt like I'm taking dictation from some other source. And you know me, I'm not a particularly, I'm not a theistic person. So I don't think there's, you know, it doesn't come from God. It comes from, um, um, some energy within that, uh, is, uh, crap. I get it. I get it. Yeah. And when you've written a song. Yeah. I can relate in part, but mm-hmm. I also can say that it definitely feels like me. But there are times when I can step outside of me and watch me. Mm-hmm. But there are definite times when it's me doing it. I can feel it, especially singing. It's such a physical thing. It comes from your diaphragm and your mm-hmm. lungs and your throat and your mouth and your head. It just is a very... Yeah. You feel singing, you know. Nice. And... Uh, and do you get that sense when you're writing? You know, maybe a better way to put it is it comes from the room where the lights are off, but instead of me going in the room, some part of me comes out. Interesting. Yeah. Because I know it's me. You allow something to come out. Yeah. You create a invitation for, for it to be expressed, and it, and, it, and it just starts to express itself. That was the funnest part of writing the darn thing. Do you think that having a dim bedroom leads you to be less or leads you to be like more surprised by the writing process. Like, Whoa, that was like, wh- huh? Is it, is that part of it? Maybe. I don't know. Cause I don't, you know, I don't have the experience of lights. Yeah. So it's possible that that's the case. Huh. Yeah. Cause I wonder if you had a brighter bedroom, you would be like, yep, totally me. I made that choice. And sure. There's a part of it that feels like it's emerging from the universe. And I'm just, like people, sculptors would say that they're like, I, you know, I'm I'm not sculpting something. I'm just allowing a form to emerge. I'm just emerge. chipping away the extra stuff. Right. They'll say. Yeah. And so on that way, I think all any creator can kind of relate to that. Yeah, that's it's like that. Yeah. But I also wonder if there's another element or experience that is is particular to people who have a dim bedroom and realize, wait, so there is a self in there because because. Nothing in that book came from anyone else. Everything in that book came from Bob. <laughs> yeah. And every choice, every decision, every emotion, every yeah. interaction between people, every motivation, yeah. every narcissistic motivation of sure. a character comes from you. Yeah. So for you to 
do something like that, you ha- there must be a lot of those elements in your bedroom. They're, they're in there somewhere, right? Right. Because yeah. your book is so human, right? It's not like, mm. um, I don't know, it's not like cars crashing into it. It's not a plot-driven thriller. No. Right. It's a guy in therapy and yeah. people having relationships and having inner thoughts. Yeah. And... Like a Chuck Palahniuk kind of kind of book. Oh, now that's a writer. Holy cow! I mean, are you in that genre? No, no, no. I I think he's just like. But it's sort of in that genre. Well, okay, yeah. It's more literary than than you know, uh, thrill him up, right? Yeah, and has some sci fi ish elements to some it. Of it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That are more background or sort of. Uh, assisting of the relationship and the inner psychology of these people. Yeah, that's a great way to talk about it. Because it is not a science fiction book. It just has these elements that support a story. Yeah. Yeah. Like how mm. um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Right. You could call that a science fiction. You could. But it's much more about rom- romantic relationships and pain and right. and grief. Right. And accepting the other person as they are, including right. the bits that maybe you don't love. It just happens to be told through a story where there's this fantastical future invention right. where you can erase people's erase memories. Memory, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, it, it, I have to tell you, Bob, it pains me to, to think that um, you went through what you went through, so it makes it difficult for you to see who, what I see in you. And, of course, no one can see ourselves as good as we can see mm. ourselves. So it's like whatever I see... I would never be capable of seeing what you're capable of seeing if you had brighter lights in your bedroom and, and weren't made to feel afraid of mm. rummaging around in your drawers and, and throwing stuff out into the world, you know? Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, you know, you've done a lot of healing, and so it's not like it's not been without effort, and yeah. and you've, you've grown a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and me too. You know, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, it's not like you're in other sort of species in this way. No. Um, but I'm sure the listeners feel that too. It's just, it's just, um, and I, I'm positive a lot of the listeners can relate to you. They will write to us and say um, sort of versions of what you're saying, but perhaps with without the dialogue. And a therapist like yourself expressing the, it through your clinical language mm-hmm. is so interesting to hear, uh, and I'm sure interesting to, to the listeners. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and I'm, now I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to title this episode, because originally it was just going to us do a short episode on the mental status exam <laughs> on affect. And my God, how did we get here? We, we got somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So actually what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to re-record. We'll have to re-record the intro okay. and uh, add in this stuff because I feel like people should know what this episode is really about. Right. If they're looking for a mental status exam, they're just going to get a smattering of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, this episode's in, in, in the way Eternal Sunshine is about romance and grief and the <laughs> self with a, uh, a what do you say, a paterna, a Patina? Patina of science fiction. Yeah. This episode is really about the self, you and my relationship. Oh, yeah. Our vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. our personalities with a patina 
of affect in the MSE. <laughs> Maybe well, that's the title. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology and Seattle. Thanks for joining us, patrons, and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.